0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done over 415 of them now, and if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, go to batgap.com and look under the past interviews menu where you'll see all the previous ones organized in several different ways. This whole program is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers whom we very much appreciate so if you would like to support it uh, in any way um, there's a donate button on every page of the site my guest today is paul Mueller ortega i first heard about paul uh, on the uh, spirit matters talk podcast that my friends phil goldberg and dennis ramundi do and he sounded very intriguing uh, but they only do half an hour. I'm going to do two hours with him, And, I, and, he, he, has, <laughs> and uh, he has a wealth of knowledge and experience going back 50 years of study in this lifetime. And uh, I think that a lot is going to be covered in this interview, and people will find it very interesting. Um, so a, couple, a little bit about him, and then you can read a more detailed biography on my site or his site, um, which is BlueThroatYoga.com. Um, Paul is a recognized, uh, recognized internationally as one of the world's most highly respected and renowned academic scholars in the field of Indian religion and Hindu Tantra. He is the founder of Blue Throat Yoga, which teaches the Svantara, Svantantra philosophy of Kashmir Shaivism, along with the practice of Nilakantha meditation. For nearly 50 years, Paul has been a pioneer in the technology of consciousness, lecturing and teaching about meditation and Indian philosophy to hundreds of thousands of people in North and South America, Europe, and India. So again, there's a lot more about Paul if you want to read his full bio on his website or on his page on batgap.com. Blue throat yoga. So probably many listeners will be familiar with the, the idea that Shiva is depicted as having a blue throat because he drank some poison to protect... Yeah, I don't even remember the whole story. I'm sure Paul can tell us, but I guess that's how you got that name.
1: (laughs) Yes, Nila Kanta. uh, His throat is striped and stained by the potency of this poison. Uh, it's It's a long myth. I won't tell the whole structure of it, but basically the devas and the asuras, the gods and the demons, are churning the ocean of milk, and what they're after is Amrita, the nectar of immortality. So they have this cooperative, usually they are great antagonists, but here they are cooperating. They turn a mountain upside down. They wrap a serpent around the mountain and they create this churn and all kinds of amazing things come out. And uh, for me, this, this churning of the ocean of milk is an extraordinarily beautiful mythic metaphor for the whole process of Yogic sadhana. There's a churning of of consciousness. Many different things emerge in the story: the nine-trunked ayadavata, albino elephant, this huge gem, all these, the goddess Shri, all these things. But then, at a certain moment, poison begins to emerge and it surfaces as this black, icky, gross kind of stuff. And um, Lord Brahma and Lord Vishnu, who are overseeing the whole matter, um, basically don't know what to do, so they call Lord Shiva. He comes in the form of the mantra. Actually, he's called the mantra murti. Um, and he sits at the edge of this ocean of milk, puts his left hand into it, and the poison starts to rise up his hand into his mouth and he holds it in his throat. And we know that, you know, in the, in the, the what's really a much later chakra system, the, ch- the throat chakra is called Vishuddha, which has to do with purification. So the, the transmutational purification of this poison, which was really symbolic of all of the negative karmas that's said to constitute the agonies of humanity in a certain sense that are being churned out of and being released in this way. And he holds it in his throat and it stains his throat blue. And this is, this is a very, very old myth. It's already present. Uh, in the text of the Sri Rudram, which is at least 2,000, if not uh, m- much older than that, as a text, it's one of the great famous appellations or sort of sacred names of Lord Shiva Nilakanta. There are many other references to his throat uh, in this way, the, and, and the, this idea of the sort of a, a, almost like a radioactive cobalt blue Intensity of energy that represents the transmutation of this negative karma into something that is actually nectarian in its character. So, the myth or the the metaphor of alchemy and of alchemical transmutation is, is part of what's indicated here. And then it's also the, the connection of the throat to the mantra, the saying of the mantra, obviously at different levels of speech, et cetera, and so on. So, it was an intriguing, it's, been, it's always been an intriguing name for me. And when I retired from the university, uh, in 2009, I taught for many years at the University of Rochester in New York and began to teach. I thought, well, this is a beautiful name. Let me let me take this. Uh Kanta, Lord Blue Throat, uh, stained blue, yeah.
0: Good. I'm sure that we could spend the whole interview just talking yeah. about what yeah. you just said. Um, I seem to remember somebody once asking Marji Mahesh Yogi about why the gods and demons are always fighting. Mm-hmm. depicted as, as fighting or competing in these ancient texts. And he said something about, you know, it kind of keeps the creation manifest, that, <laughs> that, that you know, polarity.
1: Keeps um, the story going, that's right. Yeah,
0: <laughs> like otherwise the whole thing would just sort of whoom,
1: collapse. Exactly, exactly.
0: Mm. Um, all right, so Kashmir Shaivism uh, and Tantra Maybe explain those two terms a little bit and, um, you know, all right. what they're all about.
1: So basically, of course, the term Tantra is a huge term, and there are actually many different traditions in. Uh, not just in the so-called Hindu or uh, South Asian world, but also in Buddhism. Uh, there's a Jaina Tantra, there's a Vaishnava Tantra, and so on. So Tantra encompasses many, many different, uh, traditions and is defined quite variously and differently in all of these different traditions. Within the, the, the stream of traditions associated with Lord Shiva, the Shaiva traditions are the emerging, that begin to emerge in a series of texts known as the Agamas and Tantras. Uh, which are revealed scriptures that parallel the authority of the Veda at a much later period of time so starting at around the third century approximately of the common era uh, these texts begin to appear which are which are not considered to be of human origin and which begin to teach a series of uh, teachings about a, a tradition that has a, a Great variety of names. One of them is this term svatantriya, which means freedom, uh, and it, it's sometimes called the svatantriya Vada, the teaching, or you know, the, the the philosophy of the ultimate freedom of consciousness itself. And it's most likely, I mean, it's it's a sort of a, a, a scholarly argument: where does tantra come from? But it's most likely that tantra originates in these texts of the Shiva tantric tradition, and then it spreads and changes and transmutes as it moves in. Into, into other settings. In the context of the Shaiva Tantric tradition, these texts are about fundamentally, I mean, they're fundamentally about a very delimited number of things they are about consciousness and they teach the nature of the absolute consciousness known in the first one of the the root text of this tradition which is called the shiva sutras it's called chaitanyam the great absolute consciousness and the nature of that consciousness they are about the the wisdom of the of the knowledge of that consciousness and within that then obviously they offer Sadhana's various different kinds of initiatory practices, as well as many rituals, as well as a whole system of of sort of daily uh, life, et cetera, and so on. And, and from these Agamas and Tantras, then there evolves a series. There evolve a series of great masters who begin to write and comment on. Uh, the teachings of these. Probably the greatest of them uh, is a medieval uh, teacher who lived m- most of his life in Srinagar in Kashmir in the 10th to 11th century whose name was Abhinavagupta. His title was Rajanaka Abhinavagupta. And he was just a most extraordinary, prolific, uh, and exquisite author who wrote voluminously many, many different texts about this tradition. And some of the themes that he talked about, there are obviously different forms of the Shakti, of the goddess, the understanding of the goddess at the highest level of consciousness, not on a ritual level, uh, not even on a deity level, but the understanding of the potency of consciousness as understood in terms of a great variety of goddesses, some of the earliest philosophical writings about the goddess kali for example appear in this text other goddesses the goddess para who is the the sort of the embodiment of the supreme word of consciousness within these texts also we get a, the, the the really exquisite and very sophisticated teachings with regard to what is called matrika shakti which is really the teaching of the nature of language and of the impulses of consciousness that create the structures of language and of knowledge um in in a very very beautiful array that that parallels uh the structure of sanskrit itself and so uh from this then um, both There are two branches. One is obviously the understanding of ordinary conventional language. How does language function, uh, the communication of, of, of meaning between human beings, but then also the whole topic of mantra. And really, the these texts are among the most sophisticated and precise texts where, in very great technical detail, the teachings of mantra are investigated in in a very, very beautiful and profound way. Abhinavagupta himself, in many of his masterworks, goes into great detail with regard to the nature of mantra, what is a mantra, how do we understand mantra, the functionality of mantra, etc., and so on. So really, they could be called mantra shastra, or systematic knowledge with regard to mantra. And then within that, they offer the, the Shaiva Tantric texts of Kashmir Shaivism offer what I would call a philosophy of refinement, in which the Sanskrit term is samskara, not in the meaning of the, the traces of past action, but samskara in the sense of the refinement of life. How is life to be refined such that it yields higher and higher values of existence. And so there's a very, very beautiful set of teachings with regard to the refinement of the mind, the refinement of thought, the refinement of the breath, the refinement of the senses, uh, the refinement of speech, the refinement of of action, uh, et cetera, and so on. It's very, very beautiful teachings. And all of these then center on, I mean, I have to backtrack a little bit to talk about it. It is a non-dual tradition that, however, is mostly, although not exclusively, centered on householder practitioners. I'll talk about that more in a little detail. Now, one of the things that happens historically is that this tradition gets lost. There are many, many reasons for this. Uh, one is sort of the you know, initiatory, it was a, initiatory lineages just trail off as Islam begins to come in to Kashmir, uh, with the movement, you know, the whole Mughal Empire and so on into Kashmir, then the, the support, the term Rajanaka, which was Abhinavagupta's title, it was a hereditary title, actually means one who is a Brahmin who is supported by the Maharaja. It's a very, very uh, interesting term. Um, that support vanishes, and so clearly, these extraordinary scholarly and also extraordinary learned, but also enlightened masters um, lose the the, the the we could call the cultural and even economic context uh, for their life, and it doesn't become possible for the tradition. So, within about two hundred years of Abhinavagupta's life, the tradition dies out almost entirely in the north of India. In Previous to that, it has spread throughout all of India, and the influence and the impact of these writings and of these texts is to be found all over, in many different places and, and libraries in India find uh, that the texts of this tradition are there. But as a living, initiatory, esoteric lineage, set of lineage streams, uh, the so-called Kashmir Shaiva, which is really a modern term, uh, not very precise term, it's, it has some problems, but um, disappears really. And what happens is the texts of these traditions, of this, the various branches, their various sort of schools within so-called Kashmir are preserved uh, in manuscript form in Srinagar. and And really, they're sort of copied and recopied and preserved as treasures. But really, there's very little understanding of the actual practice and and we don 't have knowledge of any other masters in this tradition until the twentieth century and in the early twentieth uh, century, uh, the Maharaja of Kashmir. Uh, finances a research project for the publication of these texts. And over the course of about 30 years, uh, his small sort of uh, research department, it's called In Srinagar, begins to publish starting around 1918 into the 1930s and 40s, prior to World War II. Uh, and these books are then sent out to a variety of universities around the world, where most of them sort of languish in deep storage, et cetera, and so on. My own encounter with all of this was uh, when I was in graduate school in 1973, my teacher in, in graduate school, Jerry Larson, who's an extraordinary scholar of yoga, uh, just an exquisite um, professor. I was very lucky to have him as a teacher. Um, we were in, I don't know, it was like third or fourth year Sanskrit, went over to the library of the university, and he showed us these 72 more, actually, volumes of the Kashmir Series of Texts and Studies, as it's called. He is a scholar. He's still writing and producing his scholarship, uh, though retired from the university. Jerry was a scholar, of, is a scholar of, of classical yoga, Patanjali yoga, and classical Sankhya, but he was interested in the teachings of the 25 tattvas or principles, reality principles in Sankhya, and where we get different versions of that. And one of the different versions we find are the, the 36 tattvas in the classical the teachings of the so-called Kashmir Shaiva tradition. So anyway, long story short, that's where I was first introduced to uh, this tradition in graduate school. And I've been pretty much fixated and fascinated and obsessed uh, with it ever since. Now, obviously, Tantra For many many years, I was a member of a small scholarly group. It's still in existence. I don't attend the meetings anymore. The Society for Tantric Studies, and pretty much I would say the first five years of our meetings, what we did was argue about the meaning of tantra. It's a, it's not an easy thing to define. But in the context of the Shaiva of the Shaiva Tantra tradition, tantra is the the systematic science. The Chit Shakti Vidya. It is the wisdom or the systematic knowledge of the potency of consciousness. It is about mantra Shastra, about this extraordinary technology of mantra in very acute and refined detail. Uh, very, very beautiful teachings there. It's about refinement. And it's also, it also offers a, an esoteric path, uh, for householders that is non-dual. Um, and, and, you know, historically what happens is that the non-dual tradition that sort of wins the day historically in India is, of course, Vedanta, particularly Advaita Vedanta, which is a renunciatory tradition. And what's, one of the things that's been lost is, it's recovered now, but historically was that there was a parallel tradition, which was this tradition of the so-called Kashmir Shaiva tradition, which was a non-dual tradition for householders, for householder practitioners, that was a parallel path and that that parallel path for householders was lost in a certain sense, or at least it was lost from public view. Obviously, there are always the stewards and the guardians behind the scenes and the, and the teachers and so on who are maintaining these things in some way or another. But in terms of a widespread knowledge of Abhinavagupta, the predecessor teachers of Abhinavagupta, who start out with, you know, these great teachers, Vasugupta, Samananda, Utpaladeva, these extraordinary masters who write these exquisite texts, um, and so on. And then subsequent after Abhinavagupta, there are several other teachers. Shemaraja is one of the most famous ones who composes a text known as the the heart of recognition, the pratyabhignya Hridayam. Um, but basically, the teachings of these masters are lost from view in a more widespread way. And with that, the understanding that there is any such thing as a path to ultimate attainment that does not involve renunciation or the the, 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 the process of becoming a sannyasi uh, formally in that way, was also something that was lost. And I think that one of the things that happens in sort of popular culture and in the sort of even today in the widespread sort of marketplace of spirituality, of yoga and so on, is that is that spirituality is still primarily understood almost exclusively in terms of renunciation and in terms of renunciatory practices and the idea that there is any such thing as a parallel path that involves householder practice. It's, it's not, we're not talking about householder dharma and, and so on. This is something else. This is the esoteric path of ultimate realization walked by householders, which is very different in its character, uh, extremely different in its character um, from the renunciatory path, and obviously offers then a whole different set of. So I think this is one of the things that's fascinated me uh, is that how to investigate this tradition and what it offers and how it brings this understanding in this way. And of course, there's, there's much more to say about all of this. But. Okay.
0: Yeah. Well, I probably had about a dozen questions come to mind while you were saying all that. <laughs> but I'll try to stick to the the most, the most ones that come to the front of the queue in my mind. Yeah. Well, first of all, most of my audience are not going to be scholarly right. people like right. you, are, ac- right. academicians, but they're all spiritual aspirants right. of, of, of various right. stripes. And... Um, as you well know, I'm sure uh, the word tantra to most people implies great sex, right, so, exactly. you know? right. and it's interesting that you mentioned the Kashmir Shaivism tradition offers something for householders that's uh, on a parallel track right. but right. different than the Advaita tradition, right. uh, because most people who are into spirituality these days, or a great many of them, are you know, big fans of Ramana Maharshi, right. And of course, many of them are from Papaji's lineage, if you call that a lineage, mm-hmm. and, and sure. he was Ramana Maharshi's disciple, but right. was not himself a householder. And yet, there's still a fairly strong renunciate flavor, if you if you read a right. lot of Ramana Maharshi's works and all, and I think that kind of filters down into people's thinking and expectations right. and feeling like, you know, and their their interpretation right. of what, what spirituality is supposed to be all about. So... Um, that, that gives you a springboard to just comment on those few points, just about you know, where the, the sexuality aspect of Kant, Tantra fits into the whole picture, and, and this sort of emphasis on, uh, perhaps an implicit emphasis, if you read a lot of Ramana, on a renunciate viewpoint, which might actually not be the most um, suitable thing for many of the people reading it.
1: Well, exactly. I mean, you've, you've hit it exactly on the head, Rick. This, these are some of the concerns and some of the confusions and some of the ways in which there are sort of ambiguities between all of these things. One of the ways that I talk about it, and I'll come to the, to the topic of sexuality in, in a moment, but one of the ways that I talk about it in terms of, you know, we have this sort of fundamental metaphor of the ocean of consciousness, and then a wave on the ocean of consciousness. So that, and this is, this is a traditional, uh, nyaya or sort of illustrative example from the Shaiva tradition. They talk the, the, the great ocean rises up in waves. Why does it rise up in waves? Well, because it is its inherent nature. It's swabhavata. The inherent nature of the ocean is to rise up in waves. Now the question is, once that individual life wave, and those waves obviously represent us, individuals, um, once the, the the life wave rises, the Shiva tradition says what happens is that the wave forgets its oceanic character, and they have a whole set of, of teachings with regard to why it is that that forgetfulness happens, et cetera, and so on. Then there is the, and I can go into that later if you want. But then there is a whole set of teachings with regard to. Upaya, as it's called, the Benavagupta brings forward the method. He says, "How is it that, having forgotten that oceanic totality of consciousness, we can recover that oceanic totality?" He says, "Upaya." Now, within that, then he offers, which means it,
0: skillful means, right?
1: It's, it means method. Yes, yeah, skillful means is the translation usually in Buddhist texts. Oh, um, here, here it's sort of method or sets of practices, um, okay. and and he offers actually four. Um, uh, different upayas in his teachings. It's, it's really fascinating. The richness of his teaching isn't just to offer one path or a set of methods. He offers actually four, um, and we can look at that also in, if you want to. The, the, however, the point I'm coming to is to say within that, in the application of method or practice to the life wave, there are two different directions. One is that says, now that wave has risen, and therefore it must subside. So the, the way for the wave to recapture its oceanic totality is to subside as an individual wave. And in fact, renunciatory practice asks, you know, so we say even in the Yoga Sutra, there's right at the beginning the whole notion of nirodha, it's cessation of the activity of the awareness. vritti uh is the definition of yoga. And it's this has all been understood in terms of saying the individual life wave has to subside. Not only must it subside, it must be negated, annihilated, and completely, you know, stopped so that all that's left is oceanic in its character. And there's a whole set that if one looks at renunciatory practice, one will realize it's about, it's about annihilation. It's about the annihilation of any separateness. It's also about the annihilation or the uprooting of any form of impulse of desire, any agenda toward action, any form of investment within the relative structure of reality. It's the dissolution of all of that. Now, the Keshe Shaiva tradition offers a very different perspective on this metaphor. It says, look, it's actually very different. It's the exact opposite. The life wave must be involved in a set of methods or practices, a variety of different terms that are used for this, by means of which the individual draws from that oceanic totality at its base to cause the wave to rise higher and higher and higher and higher and 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 so that eventually the entire ocean will rise up into an individual wave and 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 therefore it's it's a very different perspective so you have you know I talk about the life wave amplification and refinement so it isn't just about drawing something but it also has to be refined it has to be continuously refined through a series of stages in the journey of consciousness and that that is that is exactly it's 180 degrees opposite in terms of the directionality of, of practice uh, that's involved. It's not about, also, it's not about the negation or the eradication of all impulses toward investment in action. It is about the purification, if you want to call that, I'll use that term, or the, the um, dissolving or negating of um, life-damaging impulses, but it's actually about the Investment and fulfillment of those impulses or agendas of life that rise up within the individual. So, so the, the empowerment of desires, as it were, not desire just in the, in the sense of sexual desire, but any form of investment towards life, creative, any form of creativity, any form of action and so on. How is it that those impulses and agendas of life can best be fulfilled? And that, that that a set of a, a set of practices by means of which that is being supported, rather than the 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 notion in the renunciatory path is the eradication. It's really the the deracination. It's pulling everything up by its root, so there's nothing left of any separate impulse. And it's you know renunciatory practice, if practiced authentically, and it is renunciatory practices is is and and paths are exquisite. They are very beautiful. The question is most people don't find them suitable for life it 's what is compatible with life. This is the issue you see so what was lost then was this non dual householder non renunciatory set of of practices and initiatory paths and esoteric teachings and so on uh, within which then what was happening was not the eradication of 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 separateness but rather the the Drawing at the base and the rising up in in the Sanskrit term, uh, Benavagupta uses Purna Ahanta, the perfectly fulfilled, great I am consciousness. So that is this rising and rising and rising, and then he has a map. It's a very interesting map um, that's interesting to look at with regard to stages on that journey, various levels of the rising of consciousness toward higher and higher stages. So he, it's it's not about a single. Uh, stage it 's a multi tiered kind of map that 's also very interesting, so
0: so what you just said about the rising of the wave to become yeah. you know, the whole ocean rising right. in a wave, um, I presume that you're implying correct me if i 'm wrong that not only well I, I was kind of reminded of all these verses in the Gita, like yeah. you know establishing yoga perform action right. or y- right. yoga is skill in action exactly. and things like that, right. Right. and the emphasis being that um, you know, enlightenment is not merely about renunciation, but actually can be a, a tremendous uh, boon in terms of more effectiveness right. in, exactly. in the world. Exactly. Not renunciation in the world, but actually being more accomplished exactly. more in the world. Right. Yeah, and that's not incompatible. So it's, right. it's there in the traditional Hindu texts. Yes. But then, uh, you know, Shankara's lineage was all renunciates, and it probably got swept under the rug. That was the, the implication of spiritual development yeah. for, for the vast majority of people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I Yes. And I think, I mean, this is, it, it's complex. It's obviously a long history that spans at least a thousand years, if not more, of various kinds of evolutions. One of the fascinating details within all of that is that one of the places actually where the Tantric tradition survives is actually in the very center of the Shankarite orders, uh, the, the matas of Shankara, as the later form of goddess-centered uh, Shrividya, where the the practice of Shrividya becomes the esoteric practice of the of the monastics um, and and so on. But it is it is kept sort of uh, sort of as the se- most secret teaching or the most uh, restricted teaching in that way. Um, and so, I mean, it, it's it's quite complicated, and I'm, I'm sort of painting with a broad brush here. But it's one of the places where the tantra actually survives is there. But it, but generally speaking, this idea of a householder esoteric path that is non-dual in its character has been lost and it's been lost from view. And, and part of what the, I think that, you know, the, over the last hundred years or so, the, the, the recovery of, of somewhat lost tradition of so-called Kashmir Shaivism has been a, it's a collective enterprise. Obviously, it's not any one individual, but there's been an interesting, emergence, if you will, of this tradition and of its teachings and of the writings of its masters uh, and so on that that gives us, offers us a very different picture and a very different perspective and something that's very, it's actually interestingly modern in a certain way. It's an interestingly compatible with uh, the aspirations of many people in our modern world where they, uh, people are not necessarily all flocking to become renunciates and so on. So, yeah. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah.
0: Yeah. In fact, another you know I try to keep my audience in mind during these interviews and and one bias or opinion that I often hear aired is that um you know all this stuff about gods and goddesses and all the the sort of all the trappings of the Hindu tradition, the Vedic tradition, seem like so much diversity to people, especially if right. they've been reading a lot of Ramana, and they think it's all dualistic, all that stuff. Right. Why Why don't we just cut to the chase, and, and there's only one reality, and we shouldn't get hung up in, in all these details, and so on. And so, I don't know, address that doubt.
1: Well, I mean, I think it's it's also a question of taste. The spiritual path many times responds to what we're come into this life, you know, and what people's tastes are, what their previous experiences, what they what they gravitate toward, what form or you know, like Joseph Campbell talked about the masks of God, what mask of reality is appealing to us in a certain kind of way. That's part of what you know in the Hindu tradition they talk about the Ishta Devata, the 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 desired form of the deity that speaks to you most powerfully is the is the form of reality that you can most easily approach that's closest to your heart uh, in that way. And I think that th- there's no question that, you know, one of, the, one of the boons of this time is the sort of the almost infinite variety of different paths that are available. The, the downside of that boon, obviously, is a tremendous amount of confusion uh, with regard to um, aspects of all of this. But nevertheless, uh, yes, one, one it is clear that the Conventional Hindu religion to separate conventional Hindu religion, which obviously has many different sampradayas or groupings within it, um, does focus on a great variety of different deities, d- different faces, different forms, different approaches, uh, rituals, temples, uh, festivals, holy days, etc., and so on. Clearly, within that, however, even in the earliest teachings, there's a notion that says there's 33 million. Faces of God, and there's one. There's only one, Tad ekam There's only that one. Uh, and this is also very, very powerfully taught um, in the h- sort of higher esoteric teachings of the Kashmir Shaiva tradition, where there is the notion of the one great unitary light of consciousness, the Mahaprakasha, uh, which then appears in so many different ways, just like within that light, all the different colors of the rainbow can appear. So too, the diversity of forms and shapes and faces and mortis, as it were, uh, that can appear, but that all of them are really aspects or dimensions, facets or values of, of that ultimate reality that then are highlighted in a certain kind of way. And there is a utility to highlighting the different kinds of shakti as we explore our own life and explore our own life our path what is the pot- what is the what are the various forms of the potency of consciousness we talk about the consciousness you know the, the the potency of consciousness the potency of bliss the potency of will the potency of knowledge the potency of action these different forms are are very important to to understand and really show us details and technicalities of specificities of of pathways as it were that that are necessary for us they they provide the vocabulary for understanding a lot of this
0: yeah so um a couple of themes here uh, i want to bring in i'll read a couple quotes from you in order to introduce them one is the sort of progressive nature of of spiritual development Mm -hmm. and the other is the sort of the two-step process of knowledge and experience so with regarding the progressive nature um Here's a quote. It is only through repeated inquiry, prolonged contemplation, and a continuous process of returning to themes, concepts, and understandings over time that we truly refine, advance, and penetrate into the deep marrow of what is conveyed in a revelatory text such as the Shiva Sutras. And um, here's another quote. The the notion of vikalpa sam... Samskara, right. the progressive refinement of understanding is presented by the great Mahasiddha Abhinavagupta in the Tantra Loka. So, a lot of people take exception with that kind of notion. They say, again, they say, cut to the chase, realize that you're that. All this notion of a progressive path, ongoing refinement and development is just going to keep you chasing the dangling carrot, you know, always looking for something over the next horizon. You're never going to arrive. Um, so, how do you reconcile that? objection with what I just read.
1: Right. Well, I mean, this is where, uh, before I was referring to Abhinavagupta offering what, the four upayas, and he talks about four different methods, and these are gradated understandings of spiritual paths. He does speak almost immediately. This is in his massive work called the tantra loka light on the tantras which is a extraordinary huge commentary on these revealed scriptures of the tantras and agamas of the shaiva tradition almost immediately he wants to say there is the anupaya which is the non-method method in which the only thing that is operative is grace there is no path. There is no mantra. There is no initiation. There is no progress. There is no transformation. It is instantaneous in its character, and and really relies on no form of effort or action or investment of the individual. And he and makes a to place what of,
0: percentage of people do you feel that that well, pertains?
1: Well, that's the issue exactly. <laughs> he himself says uh, it's a pretty small club. It's like yeah. membership in this club is pretty small. He wants to account for the fact that, you see, he's he's speaking about the freedom, the Swatantriya of reality. And he says, reality is so free that if it, quote, wants to, it can liberate someone instantaneously. Uh, even if they're not a go- good person, it has nothing to do with their karma in a certain way, they could be potentially instantaneously liberated. And he does make a place for that. And he says, yes, there is that notion of the instantaneously liberated masters or masters who even are born enlightened, the janma siddhas, as they're called, they're born already liberated, already free, do not have to walk any form of progressive path or whatever. He says, however, if that is not the case for you as an individual, then there's clearly something that needs to transpire. And the the inquiry then is the inquiry into what is that something that must transpire? And, and basically in a lot of different places, and he goes. this goes back also to the teachings of one of the great tantra texts, the most extraordinary text called the Vijnana Bhairava Tantra, which is a, a the, the one of these tantras that's entirely devoted to meditation, where it says, look, any notion of approach to the non-dual has instantaneously invoked duality. The moment that you talk about non-duality and then you say, now I'm going to move toward that or enter into that or whatever, you have posited instantaneously duality in that moment. And the question is, how do you overcome that? How do you overcome that paradox that says, yes, you can say everything is is one, there's only one thing, immediately enter into that. And Gupta says, yes, for some people that happens spontaneously, automatically, effortlessly, without any form of investment, initiation, teachings, path, nothing. It just happens for them. That's great. It happens. It does happen. But for the rest of us, for whom that has not happened in that way, then there is the notion that says, well, what are you going to do? See, What are you going to do?
0: This brings up a question that I often run into, um, which is that a lot of people read a bunch of books and they they say, yeah, I get it. It's all non-dual. Right, and, right. and then they kind of assume that that intellectual understanding is what these books are talking about. They right. don't realize that they're mistaking an understanding for the the experience that the exactly. books are referring That's right. That's to. Right. So right. there's a second Estate. point I wanted yeah. to raise with you, yeah. which is about... The gnana-vignana. Right. neither experience nor understanding alone, truly suffice for the growth of true wisdom on the spiritual right. path. They're right. like two legs that you need exactly. to walk on. That's right. Both should develop a pace.
1: Exactly, exactly. It's an extraordinary teaching. It's um, right at the beginning of of Gupta's masterwork, the Tantraloka. He offers this understanding. He says there's, there's two kinds of ignorance, and there's two kinds of knowledge that overcome that ignorance. And therefore, they need to be both worked on. On the one hand, you have what he calls paudusha, or so-called spiritual ignorance, which is the, the, the absence of the knowledge of the transcendental self experientially, and then there's bauda, which is the, the absence of the correct or highest or most liberative understanding with regard to that ultimate reality. And he says, you could have one or the other, but you need both of them, actually. The, both of them need to be there. And that what often happens, and something that I, I talk about a lot in my own teaching, is that, is that there's a lag between people have experiences but they but there's a lag in terms of their understanding of what those experiences mean signify convey or the import or the true value of them and that in that in that in that differential between their depth of spiritual immersion into reality in a certain way but then the the continuation of the animation of sur- superficial or inadequate ways of thinking about all that conceptualizing they perpetuate then a form of of ignorance for themselves. It's only when the, the so therefore, Rabindavu uh, teaching of the Kalpa Samskara, which he mentioned before, the refinement of conceptualization, says yes, there must be this, a set of practices by means of which there is immersion in ultimacy. He, one of the terms he uses is Hridaya Vishranti, reposing in the great heart of the Absolute, a set of practices that take us there. And by the way, the teaching with that says, Shaivi Mukam in Sanskrit, which means here in this tradition, it is the Shakti that functions as the doorway or access point to that ultimacy. One cannot approach that ultimacy directly, says the tradition. It one one must have the intermediary of the Shakti. Hence, the extraordinary focus on the different kinds of Shakti uh, in this tradition. The, the the Shakti creates the pathway or the access gate or uh, or the means to it to to enter into that. But having entered into that, then the question is, how is the person still thinking about the whole thing? How are they understanding it? And in many cases, there's a perpetuation of very limited understanding, fallacious or incomplete or unrefined knowledge with regard to it. And hence, for this tradition, it is just as important to have the experiential immersion in ultimacy, in absoluteness, and the digestion and the the sort of the, the continuous steeping and dying of the cloth of consciousness in that, as there is the notion of the process of refining how we're thinking about it and having our mind and our understanding catch up with what is already taking place. And that, that's that's the process of a of cry. It says, look, your mind ordinarily is going to animate limited knowledge. The, 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 the Shiva Sutra, the, the famous root text of the tradition, says, "nyanam limited knowledge, is one of the definitions of bondage. What is bondage? Bondage is limited knowledge. It's not the complete absence of knowledge. It is a knowledge that is inadequate, crude, or superficial, incomplete, insufficiently refined, Potent and 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 aligned with, or in in sort of congruent, um, sort of um, smooth coherence with the ultimate reality itself, and therefore that process of the refinement of, of of understanding, the refinement of conceptualization, is just as important in this tradition as as the process by means of which there is the continuous um, immersion in that vastness or spaciousness of of consciousness itself. That's. Jnana vijnana, the the intellectual knowledge and the experiential knowledge are, are, he says, are, they mutually nourish and feed each other. This is right at the beginning of the Tantraloka. And eventually, as both of them mature and grow over time. And yes, there is this alternation. As our experience grows, so too does our capacity to understand. Even the teachings of the tradition, the the words of the great masters, et cetera, and so on. It is it is only as the, sort of the inner eye of experience is opened that we can actually really even register the the nuanced subtleties and in depth precisions or what are being contained uh, in this teaching. So you're absolutely right. Just reading a book. And saying, oh, yeah, well, I'm I'm cool with that. Yeah. Non-duality is my my bag, my philosophy. And so on." it's like that's that's just, you know, I mean, that's great. It's a first start. It's it's a laudable enthusiasm, but it is not it is not really the the nature of 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 realization itself in that way. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And uh, on the flip side, I've interviewed people whom I think have a very profound and genuine degree of awakening, of experience, but their interpretation of it, and then many of them become teachers and get up in front of audiences and start promulgating this understanding, uh, I think is very half-baked, and I think it confuses people. And many of them, well, many of them, not only are they espousing some understanding, which I think is limited or erroneous, but at least in my opinion, but they may not be offering any actual prescription for developing the sort of experience they are having. And so people sit there and they get kind of uplifted and inspired by what they're hearing and they kind of resonate while they're sitting there. But I don't really know how productive it is.
1: Well, exactly. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. Exactly. It's very well said. Yeah, this is the issue. And and I think that we're in a phase in which we are maturing very rapidly with regard to our understanding of overall maps of spirituality maps of enlightenment and different models of practice and of schools of practice and teachers and so on. There's a, it's an extraordinary process of transmission that's been happening to the West for the last 150 years. If we want to think of it in terms of some great wave of an awakening or dawning time, et cetera, and so on. But that, you know, even, I mean, many times people trace it back, say, well, you know, Swami Vivekananda at the World Parliament of Religions in 1893 comes to Chicago and it's really the beginning of an extraordinary wave of teachers and teachings, not just in the Hindu tradition, we know Buddhist tradition. Practically every esoteric tradition that has ever existed on planet Earth has been poured out for inspection and visibility and a certain kind of revival at the current period of time. And there's a certain kind, there's there's a sort of evolutionary process of maturation within all of these different uh, traditions and schools uh, growing up to more sophisticated, more refined, and more um, adapted to um, I, I mean, it's one of the, Abhinavagupta talks about this at great length in his writings. And he says, you know, even if there is, he, he talks about that, he calls it the Samsiddhika Guru, that teacher who has so spontaneously awakened, he says, initiated by the very potencies of his or her own consciousness. That master has risen to the highest enlightenment and that it's really considered to be the, the epitome of the highest kind of teacher, the Samsiddhika Guru. However, he says, even the Samsiddhika Guru, If they really want to present themselves as most highly authoritative, will submit to an initiatory process of studying the teachings of the tradition at length, imbibing those teachings, considering them at length, and then receiving the term he uses in Sanskrit, the sattarka, the rising up from the inside of waves of spontaneous insight into the deepest purport or meaning of these revealed scriptures and of the teachings of the great masters and so on. Um, and that only then, he says, then there is a, a teacher that could be called equal to Bhairava. Bhairava is the form of Shiva that is most uh, worshipped in this Shaiva tradition. Then they truly can be said to become Bhairavas. And so there's a, there's a kind of a responsibility to, however much there's a freedom and a feeling, you know, I mean, I, you know, when I was a university professor, we used to read William James in theories of religion classes and so on. And James talks about how mystical experience is self-validating. It's, it has this quality of when it rises up inside you that you feel that it is true and that there's nothing in the outside world that can really counter that. That feeling of the self-validating nature of mystical experience, however, still, the the Shaiva tradition said, look, however much that's your experience, you still need to practice in alignment with tradition. You need to practice in alignment with the teachings of the great teachers, the great texts, the great commentaries, and so on, because there may be remnants of of inaccuracy or superficiality, crudity of, stu- of a stula uh, character in what you're animating in your mind, the state may be very beautiful, but what is being animated in the understanding may still lag behind. And that's where then there's there's work that needs to be done. It's one of the reasons why, you know, it, it's not that this tradition is intellectual. It's a tradition that says you have to work on all of these different aspects uh, on, on the spiritual path. You need to have profound... Sequences of ever deepening immersion into that absoluteness and the digestion of that into a, a stabilizing state rising towards higher states of consciousness. But at the same time, you can't neglect the process of what your mind is thinking or understanding or conceiving around all this. And you can't just lean back on the notion of, well, I know because I've had this as a mystical experience. It has to be checked against tradition. And I think that, I think that one of the, you know, if i have sort of you know a purpose in terms of is i've wanted to bring out these texts uh, on a scholarly level and i'm still you know, i'm going to work the rest of my life to do it so that they become available as sources for checking against a particularly highly refined and sophisticated esoteric uh, tradition that that can offer a kind of a A mirror and also a safety check with regard to, you know, what it is that's coming forward. And then also uh, there's a, there's a completeness about it. Uh, uh, Many times things are left out when, when we have these experiences. Many times the experiences arise in a particular avenue of life. And then there's, there are other aspects or dimensions of the whole matter that are not fully considered and that, that then need to be opened up and aerated so yeah yeah
0: I kind of feel like for everybody who has a profound spiritual experience and whose understanding may not have caught up with it there may there's probably a hundred people who have a head full of understanding whose experience yes. hasn't caught up with it That's right. and exactly. they probably yeah. need to get cracking on some kind of spiritual discipline which we can well talk said. about in a few minutes yeah um, but I, I also want to comment on what you just said in terms of I mean I've given talks about this and thought about this quite a lot about yeah. the, the notion that Whatever reality may be, and there are all sorts of traditions that attempt to describe it, both spiritual traditions and scientific traditions, right. and they each have their own specialties. Biology doesn't mess with what, I don't know, geography is trying to do or quantum physics is trying to do. Oh, actually, that's beginning to cross over, This yeah, qu- quantum that's right. biology these days. Right. However, I think the, the quest of science is to ultimately arrive at some kind of consensus understanding of the nature of reality, each, each branch of it contributing their own piece. And I, I would think that spirituality could and should aspire to the same thing. And there are so many traditions of that throughout the world, but really they're all talking about the same reality ultimately, just coming at it from different traditions, different cultures, different ages. But then the two of those should be able to merge in a, some kind of grand unification. Mm, and you know, I could envision a society, maybe a thousand years from now or whatever, in which the whole distinction between science and religion seems ludicrous. And then yes. we use subject and objective tools of gaining knowledge, in, in harmony with one another to gain a complete understanding of the full range of reality, both the things that concrete material instruments can measure and the things that this more refined instrument called the human nervous system is uniquely um, qualified yeah. to measure.
1: Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. That's exactly it. And And that, you know, it's... <sighs> I mean, this is where, you know, Indian philosophy generally, in all of its different branches, talks about the pramanas, which are the modes or means of knowledge. So, how do we know things, you see? And what the, what the, what the, there, there are seven or eight or nine of them, depending on what different schools you look at, but basically it boils down to three. They say, look, you, we gain knowledge in life through our senses. And that's, it's called pratyaksha, the, through, through our very eyes, what's in front of our eyes, eyes as the master sense for all, all of the five senses. But we also gain knowledge through inference, anumana, which is to say we can infer from what we're seeing and derive knowledge second, secondarily in that way. The famous example is the, the, what they call the invariable concomitants of fire and smoke. If you see the smoke at a distance, but you can't see the fire, you can infer the presence of the fire because fire and smoke always go together. And that those two together, uh, Pratyaksha and Anamana, really form the basis of the scientific method. I mean, that's what science uses as its tools. Obviously, it wants to magnify the senses through instrumentation. It wants to magnify inference through theory, through mathematics, through various kinds of theoretical uh, computational means and so on. But, But science in general is focused in that way. Now the tradition says, look, there's another kind of knowledge, however. It's called Agama. And, and it is, it is of a very different character. It is the knowledge that reality has of itself spontaneously and automatically. And the way that that knowledge reveals itself within human beings and that that knowledge is not able to be, um, as it were, collapsed down to the sort of perceptual or inferential kinds of knowledge uh, that are derived from the other pramanas, and that most of so-called spirituality or spiritual paths then derive from a kind of, of knowledge that emerges spontaneously from reality itself, and that has been transferred to individuals through extraordinary individuals themselves. And that this, this then creates an, uh, just an extraordinary consideration is, how is it that using this instrument, you mentioned the nervous system it's a very beautiful phrase. This the 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 physical and subtle bodies, as it were, and their state. Knowledge can begin to arise spontaneously from within, and we as individuals can begin to serve as vehicles for the transmission of a knowledge that is not born of our surface intellect. It's not born from our cleverness or intelligence or our accumulation of data or our sort of inference around that. It is it is somehow this notion of something that emerges spontaneously from inside, fully formed and fully shaped. This is a practice, and it it receives a name, Abhinav Gupta calls it bhavana. And, and, and bhavana then is this, is this extraordinary counterpart to meditation. He says, he says, first you have to go within and clear the field of the buddhi, the pre-egoic awareness space of the debris accumulations of the negative samskaras that have accumulated. There's all kinds of junk inside us. And it has to, it's, it's it's, this physical stuff, but it's also subtle body stuff that needs to be purified away. When the buddhi is rendered sufficiently sattvic, which is to say clear and luminous and, and irradiated, ignited with light, then that becomes an arena within which the individual embarks on an adventure of invoking sequences of insight. And this is the, the, the most extraordinarily fascinating dimension of the Shaiva tradition, where they say you you practice bhavana as a, a series of practices in which you begin to inquire at the very root of of the of the relative sphere of reality at the very doorway, as it were, of the absolute. You place inquiries at that place. And those inquiries will then shape themselves into sequences of responsive structured insight that then rise through from the from the very subtle level Um, in, in terms of the vocabulary of the Tantra, it's called the Pashyanti, the visioning word, the word that is extraordinarily subtle is then concretized and rises up to become the Madhyama or intermediate dimension of thought. And then that has to be articulated in terms of speech in the Vaikriti, the spoken word. And, and it's almost that the, this as a tool or an instrument for the investigation of reality that says we as human beings can serve as, as, explorers of this ultimacy and that what can arise from that absoluteness is endless in other words there's no limit there's no boundary there's no certain set of of structures of insight there's an endless streaming of spontaneously shaping and spontaneously arising insight from within which is which is ever more refined in its character this goes back to what we we're talking about with regard to uh, conceptualization, because if that insight is arising, but then it rises through the through the level of the mind where the mind is kind of jumbled and incoherent and and filled with sort of su- superficial or limited or contracted notions and ideas, then it, you're filtering this very limpid stream through a kind of a muddiness, and then it emerges. That's what emerges in that way. So it's it's a question of how do we sufficiently clear out the instrument of the human body and, and the subtle nervous system and so on, such that then individuals can serve as uh, source points and transmission relay stations in a certain sense for these extraordinary impulses of the ultimate absolute consciousness to rise within that. And that this is the understanding, yes, it's the understanding of great teachers, but eventually it has to be the understanding of the destiny of humanity. In other words, how do human beings really rise into a golden era only by having this independent, individual access to this ultimacy, not just in terms of the silence of transcendence into the absolute, but also in terms of of being practiced and capable of receiving the streaming forth of these insights, that then serve really they serve as the, the they serve to guide, they serve to orient, they serve to inform, they serve to inspire, they serve to also permit the shaping of any kind of degree of complexity of knowledge whatsoever. And that this is the way we understand it. So we say, well, the great masters had risen to that state. So they spoke from that dimension, this very limpid and clear level of their speech, because they had cleared out, and that the aspiration isn't just to meet such a master, the aspiration ultimately is to become such a being, where that, that process uh, can arise. And that's that's part of the vision of this tradition. So so meditation and bhavana is this, this, this eliciting of sequences of spontaneous insight from within. It's very, very, very fascinating. And, and it's, it's a set of experiences. In other words, that it, it, it happens. And you begin to have a spontaneous insight from inside. And then as the process of the clarification and the refinement of consciousness proceed, so too, to an increasing, increasing degree, the ever more potent surging of different kinds of insights that then narrate, in a certain sense, the nature of reality, the nature of the absolute, the relationship of the absolute to the relative manifested structures, et cetera, and so on, and become the... So, yeah, anyway, this is, this is all... Abhinavagupta talks about this a thousand years ago in extraordinary detail, is the point I'm trying mm. to make. It's fascinating to find this in his text.
0: Somebody sent me an interesting quote from Nisargadatta Maharaj the other day. Uh, he said this shortly before his death, apparently. He said... Forget I Am That, that was the title mm-hmm. of a book uh, yeah. of his sayings. He said, I realized so much more since then, it's so much deeper.
1: Oh, I love yeah. it. <laughs>
0: yeah. Which, some people don't like that notion, because they've, like I said earlier, chasing the ever-dangling carrot, but I, I kind of love the notion of ever, never-ending exploration and unfoldment and refinement. and Beautiful, you know, Beautiful. Yeah, I mean, just... And I actually I can't say that I've ever met anyone who would be exempt from that possibility. Exactly. You know, and I've met right. some pretty interesting people, but um yeah, right. you know, I really feel right. like yeah. oh, it's a never ending exploration. And and if you read the sort of the the, the traditional texts about the various lokas and the beings yeah. that are said to dwell there and all right. you know, we're we're kind of in kindergarten here <laughs> <laughs> compared to what's possible. <laughs> Um, Well, we're on this topic of... You were talking about purification. Yeah. And um, I just want to read a question that came in from Raymond Schumann in Olympia, Washington. We were talking at the beginning about the blue throat thing. And he said, said, I read the story to mean that a seeker after enlightenment must swallow and metabolize all his personal shadow. He must also Mm -hmm. swallow his portion of the agony of creation. Beautiful. Yeah, so...
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's well said. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. That's exactly right, you know.
0: I remember um, Margie talk about stress as being Mm -hmm. impurities in the system Mm -hmm. and, you know, structural and chemical abnormalities in the nervous system which needed to be Purified structural repair, chemical purification, right. and right. these days the term neuroplasticity is is popular. Right. And right. and you know somebody asked him one time, well, what happens if we got rid of all of our stress, all of our individual stress? He right. said, well, then you start taking on cosmic stress. <laughs> 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 so you become a washing machine.
1: That's right, exactly. Yeah. And I think that I mean this is an old this is an old understanding, obviously, that says the presence of great masters on planet earth has been possibly the salvation of the planet against annihilation that great beings even in their silence even beings who do not emerge to have a public teaching or agenda or whatever that, that the extraordinary purificatory potency of great enlightened masters on the planet has served to as a countervailing kind of impulse against just the the, the sheer also ocean of horribleness as it were that that has been accumulated in that way. Yeah. That
0: That brings up an exciting point. You know um, Thich Nhat Hanh said the next Buddha may be the Sangha and um, I think we're at a, even though we've yeah, had the possibility yeah. of nuclear annihilation for, you know, half a century now, um, I think that there, there are so many things now which have lined mm. up to potentially right. kill us all, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Not only the nuclear, but right, you know, right. climate change and many, many other things. And I, I find that extremely exciting and significant that there seems to be some sort of epidemic of spiritual awakening taking place yeah. in the world, right. which right. is unprecedented in our, right. in our memory. Um, And that it might be just nature's way of um, providing the antidote, um, although it's not a done deal, but providing the potential antidote to some kind of really catastrophic thing.
1: Yes. And I, I mean, I think that, you know, when I was talking before about waves of teachers, and I think at a certain moment it's not that the wave of teachers is going to necessarily stop, but it becomes more and more our responsibility. In other words, it isn't just, it, it, you know, it, in my own teaching about these things, I talk about uh, the difference between sort of childhood, adolescent and uh, an adult or grown-up spirituality. And and sort of the, the dependence of the child on the parents to solve all the problems versus the grown-up that says, look this is uh, there aren't any other grown ups we're the grown ups we have to we have to somehow take responsibility for these things to continuously look to some salvific figure some avatar figure some somebody who's going to to solve all the problems in that way maybe they'll come maybe they won't we don't know but in the meantime we have to take responsibility and that that's also part of the understanding of householder spirituality in other words that householders are here to develop a radical degree of creativity inside ourselves. And that through that creativity, there is the possibility then of manifesting better things for a planet, better structures of society, of economics, of education, of of just uh, getting along with each other, whatever it may be, the environment and so on. So that there's, there's yeah. this notion of. The, energy, yeah, of all kinds exactly. of things. Yeah, exactly. All of it, you know, that we, you know, we're, th- this whole process of bhavana itself that I just was talking about is. A kind of doorway into infinite possibilities of manifesting methods and practices and ways by means of which that creativity can be expressed and that it is an endless well and it is our responsibility to tap into that and that therefore it's extraordinarily important that more and more of human beings you talked about more and more people awakening and we know awakening is not the same as enlightenment. In yeah, other just, words, just, it's, uh, the, it's the, There are many exactly, degrees of it. Exactly. Yeah. So, so awakening has to be met with knowledge, it has to be met with practices, it has to be met with a vision of a path, a set of understandings, et cetera, and so on. And that that's part of what's taking place in a certain way right now. We say, you know, so waves of individuals awakening in all of these different traditions then being met with understandings that will help to transform and shape life. And... For me, this understanding of, of householder esoteric non-dual practice is very, very significant because it, it, it basically says, how do you access the highest form of the potency of consciousness within yourself? And how do you express that? You were talking about, you know, yoga is, is a skill in action. And it says, how do you express that in the most complex ways, in the most varied sorts of ways? Because everybody has a different kind of genius. Everybody has a different gift that they're here to express and bring out from within themselves. Householder spirituality is also about a kind of radical stewardship and protection. In other words, that, that we're here, we're talking about saving us from nuclear annihilation. It's our job in that sense. It's not anybody else's job to look to some salvific figure, to some guru, to some avatar. and stuff. No, it's our job as we awaken, as we grow, as we mature in spirituality, as in a householder path, to, to become responsible for the environment. we really It really shouldn't be left in the hands of renunciates. If they were really renunciate, they wouldn't care. A real yeah. renunciate, it's like, they're out. See, they're just on the path out in a certain kind of way. Oh, I, it was has at, to, I was
0: at the yeah. Science Duality conference one time, and uh, a, a guy was up on stage who's a popular teacher, who actually is a householder, and, mm-hmm. and um, a Buddhist teacher got up who was very concerned about the environment and, and yeah. such, such social issues and so on. And he said, well, what about mm-hmm. the environment? What about these you know yeah. social inequities and so on? And the guy on stage was like, "Eh, you know, the Earth is like a little speck of dust. No matter what, doesn't matter what mm. happens to it." And you know, it's, that to me, you know, seemed um, inappropriate uh, <laughs> <laughs> and unnecessary, and, and really yeah. not a, a, right. an attitude we want to promulgate. If right. uh, you know, I mean, you can't evolve spiritually unless you actually have a body and can breathe and can eat, and so on. Right, right. And, uh, you know, this is a marvelous place in which to right. accomplish spiritual evolution. Let's, right. let's keep it going.
1: That's right. And yeah. we're in the, you know, this is, this is the Sandhya time. The Sandhya is the interval time or transition time between mm. so-called Kali Yuga and so-called Sat Yuga. We're in this long period of transition, which is kind of betwixt in between. It's not one, it's not the other. It's, it, you know, it's like the dawn. Is the dawn nighttime? Is the dawn daytime? Well, it's, it's a little of both. You know, is the the remnants of the nighttime are still hanging around, and then there is the anticipation of the rising sun, and so on, and the the coming new day, and so on, and in that sundia time, the the betwixt and between time. Uh, which may last for a considerable period of time beyond our lifetimes. It's the the, sort of the establishment or the setting up of those structures that are eventually going to result in a radically transformed culture, a radically transformed planet, radically transformed way that human beings will interact with each other, uh, will live, will take care of the environment, uh, will, will manifest knowledge or creativity, the arts, whatever it might be. And that all of this, is really in the arena of what the Shaiva Tantric masters envisioned in terms of the refinement of life and the drawing forth of these potencies of consciousness in manifold ways that they're, that they're expressed one of the interesting, it's a detail, but one of the interesting things is, you know, I mentioned Abhinavagupta as a teacher was kind of forgotten. The one place where he was remembered is in a kind of secondary agenda of his work, where he wrote about Indian aesthetics, the, the philosophy of art and artistic beauty. And his theory of art, the, the Rasa Dwani theory, uh, actually was is well known and survived to this day. It was a kind of a question about what is it that makes something beautiful in terms of an artistic uh, an artistic creation and it's an it's really an application of the whole the whole spirituality of the shaiva tradition but that was kind of lost and yet his his aesthetic theory which so he was open to the arts he was open to creativity uh in that way he was open to um Uh, to all the ways that human beings seek to express themselves in life. And not just this notion of giving it all up or declaring it all to be an illusion. He doesn't say it's an illusion. He says it's only relatively real, but it's not an illusion. It's real. It's just relatively real. It's not absolutely real. Um, And, and so there's a difference between those perspectives that, that, you know, sweep everything away and say, none of this matters. It doesn't matter you were never born, you never die. these are non-dualistic teachings that are appropriate for renunciates, but you can't, you can't live that way as a householder, it's very difficult to, uh, to tolerate
0: yeah, there's that famous saying by Shankara, which Ramana often quoted of, you know, the world is illusory Brahman alone is real, Brahm- yeah. Brahman is the world,
1: yeah, uh, exactly and right.
0: then there's that notion of mithya, you know where, dependent reality where, sure, a pot is nothing but clay but it's still a pot, and exactly. it can be used as a pot, and so on that's right. You know, with regard to your mention of Kali Yuga and Satyuga and so on, I mean, Kali Yuga is said to be 432,000 years long and we're only 5,000 years into it, supposedly. But I don't know if that chronology right. is actually right. correct. But I have heard it said that, you know, when Dharma reaches its nadir, then it may take a long time and slow, gradual decline to do that, but then it sort of hits rock bottom and, and rises up to 100% of restoration uh, mm-hmm. in a very short amount of time, like maybe a generation. And perhaps we're beginning to see the signs of that. And mm. you know, I don't know. You have any thoughts on that?
1: We'll see. Yeah, I okay. mean, it's you know. What can you say? <laughs> I think these are powerful, suggestive notions mm. that don't necessarily translate mathematically, or in terms of astronomy, or in terms of the history of the universe, et cetera, and so on. But are rather uh, ways of to understand. The manifestations of time. I mean that you know one of the one of the meanings of Shiva. He's he's often called Mahakala, the great time. And this notion of the, time manifests in different flavors and different you know in, in in sort of modern times we just have well time is the same all the time. It's just time. It's just you know it's it's not different. But there's this notion that different kinds of things occur in different eons of time, and that that's this, this teaching of the Kali Yuga, the Sat Yuga, Treta are ways of, of, of expressing this notion of kind of a, a, a pulsating, transforming, evolving, and devolving structure of what's interesting about this theory of time is that things get worse you know, over time. It's like the, the Sat Yuga is there and then it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. It's really quite depressing in a certain kind of way. But then there is the restoration or a revival or a rising up and, you know, how long that's going to take to happen. It's also, you know, how long according to whom. In other words, that, you know, are we talking human years? Are we talking divine years? It's, so for me, I don't, I'm not, you know, sometimes people have said, well, you know, the quoting this 432,000 years and all this stuff. It's like, well, who I don't necessarily need to take it literally. You know, yeah. it's, it's a very interesting notion. This is, we're on the threshold of something really astonishing. We cannot actually, from, from our current perspective, project and predict what is going to evolve because it's outside of the range of sort of the, the ordinary predictability of our mind, but we're on the, on the verge of something astonishing. And that there is a, there is a, there are waves of spiritually awakening human beings. Awakening, being born and, and, and so on. And that this is part of what we're in the midst of. And that it is this, this, it's kind of a, almost like a planetary emergency where it's not as if we have all these perfect schools and these perfect teachings and these perfectly orderly things. It's just every single tradition is doing the best they can to manifest and express, you know, what they possibly can and add to the collective discourse, uh, in that way. And I think that's, you know, the way I see it in terms of, this Kashmir Shaiva tradition, it, 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 it is very, very beautiful, and it's extraordinarily inspiring and necessary. Yeah. for us to understand. You know. He just
0: reminded me of something yeah. that um, Marishi said on when we, he was training us to be teachers on my course. He said, if a war is on, there's no time to train sharpshooters. Exactly, you just exactly. give people a rifle and send them out. <laughs> exactly. So we were a bunch That's of right. bozos, you know, 20, 21 years old. You know. <laughs> uh, let me just throw in a question here. It's a little bit of an abrupt segue from a, a fellow in California who submitted, David Darby in Grass Valley, asked, The broad description that you gave of Kashmiri Shaivism Tantra sounds very similar to what a broad description of the fourth way as presented by Gurjiv is, Um, particularly as a non-renunciate householder path that involves a gradual refinement of consciousness and removal of illusions. Have you come across this tradition? Do you feel there are any links between the two traditions or a similar source?
1: Well, I mean, I've I've read some of Gurdjieff and Uspensky's works and all that kind of stuff, but I can't really say that I, you know, I'm sort of scholar in a scholarly sort of way able to present a point by point comparison. Sure. no, we don't uh, have time for that the, anyway. But you know, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, it is, it, it's always fascinating when you get these parallel sorts of appearances of teachings where it seems like something echoes with something else. And of course, you know, from a scholarly perspective, it's like, is there an influence there or is this a parallel development? Is there a little of both? You know, um, it's, it's hard to say. what that might be um and and you know i think that yeah yeah
0: yeah good um another thing i'd like to bring in is um the whole gross and subtle thing yeah um both in terms of the emergence of creation from subtle to gross Mm -hmm. and the kind of like the reverse march of one's experience from gross to subtle and so the whole implications of the the power of the subtle as compared to the gross and and many other things that i'm sure you could say about it so let's talk about that stuff for a minute
1: Well, I mean, this is, you know, what you're mentioning is one of the fundamental teachings that is used everywhere in the text of the Shaiva Tantric tradition. Um, You have this notion of of bands of reality or vibratory bands of reality. The stula its not just one level, it's a band of reality that could be considered to be gross or crude, objective, superficial, fully manifested in a certain kind of way. Bands of the subtle, sukshma, bands of the extremely subtle, atisukshma, and then beyond all of that, something that transcends all of that structure could be called a Tita, or, uh, which just means utterly beyond the beyond or para, the supreme or whatever. And that, that this is the, it, it's a fundamental, extraordinarily useful map. Of, of, of both a kind of cosmic reality as well as of our own individual life. If we think of ourselves only in terms of our physical body, we're clearly doing a disservice to ourselves. Even just our minds are excluded. It's like, well, what, what about our minds? And this is, again, we're talking about science and saying, well, science wants to say, you know, What's happening in our mind is just an epiphenomenon or a secondary byproduct of our gross physical brain, et cetera, and so on. It's like, no, the tradition says it's the other way around. There is a physical body, but there is also a subtle band of reality that is no longer physical or it borders on the physical and then gets more and more subtle and so on. And then there's something extraordinarily subtle and that we as individuals, we're multidimensional beings. We exist on all those levels, except that most of the time we've forgotten, uh, or neglect, or really ignore, or do not have uh, sort of systematic access to those more interior or more subtle or more higher vibratory levels of you know. The, and, the, and the notion that says, "Well, the 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 spunda teaching. This is where it comes from. The, the Kashmir Shaiva tradition. This notion: of the vibration of consciousness is the vibration of consciousness is is it begins to thicken or coalesce a group that uses the term shianata or ashyanata it's like it's like something that is melted begins to thicken or coalesce lava cools and it becomes rock or stone in that way consciousness in the same way as it emerges. And it's one of the, you know, the, the fascination of the tantric masters is how does it emerge? Why does it emerge from the absoluteness? What is the process that governs that whole process of the, the, the spontaneous emergence of everything from some extraordinary transcendental source place, which can be called both Full purna and also empty or 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 completely uh, devoid of anything shunya. It's both at the same time. Um, and so, why does that all happen? As it emerges, it emerges first in at this level of the of the. Oh, I, what I usually talk about it is ati ati sukshma, extraordinarily extraordinarily subtle. And what Abhinavagupta talks about there, he says, in that first spontaneous instantaneous emergence. Beyond the level of absoluteness, what manifests is called the Shakti Chakra, the extraordinary vortex wheel of the potencies of consciousness, an instantaneous manifestation of the total mandala of reality that contains all all of the operating energies that will then go on to specialize and begin to modulate and express themselves in a great variety of ways. He said this extraordinary mandal, he calls it the Anakya Shakti Chakra, the indescribable vortex wheel of power that simply emerges in this extraordinary expression. It's, it's the, the, the emission in a certain sense. You have the absolute what breaches or breaks the transcendence of the absolute. He says it's a particular kind of shakti called visarga or emissional shakti that is fundamentally operative to finally force what is contained in the absolute itself to express itself suddenly, instantaneously, into this extraordinarily subtle mandala of operating power, and that the teachings of Kali in the, the Shiva tradition are totally related to the understanding of this Anakya Shakti Chakra. They talk about the, the twelve different forms of the Kali, et cetera, and so on. That is the the I usually speak about it and teach about it in terms of what I call the cosmic operator force. What is that cosmic operator force that is operating everything spontaneously and automatically and sequentially? Because this is one of the other great teachings of the, of, the, of the Shaiva tradition, is the teaching of krama, or of sequentiality, from the non-sequential, absolute, formless, timeless... Space of the absolute there emerges sequentiality, and that sequentiality has as its first instance the expression of this extraordinary vortex wheel of power at the at the uh, extraordinarily subtle level at the level of 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 our individual consciousness it's there that the word because you have the emergence of the objective universe on one track, and the emergence of knowledge, language, and speech on a parallel track. And these are two parallel tracks of emergence that are happening. So you have the emergence of these cosmic operator forces on the level of the objective track of reality that will eventually oversee the manifestation and expression of all of samsara. Not just, we're not just talking about the physical universe, we're talking about all of the possible samsara. On the other hand, you have the expression and manifestation of the levels of knowledge and of the Expressions of knowledge in language, and so the expression of the pashyanti vach, the visioning word, that is part and parcel of this indescribable vortex wheel of power. So, in the emergent side, all of that then proceeds through the the ati sukshma, the very subtle, the sukshma, the subtle, and then eventually the the freezing or coagulation or condensation or petrification of consciousness into the forms of the world. Everything is made of consciousness. The tradition says na shivam. Vidya te there is absolutely nothing that is not consciousness. However, as it has expressed itself in this frozen sort of way, we cannot see or perceive or even understand the fact that it is made of consciousness until somehow that frozenness or petrification melts once again. That's a whole separate part of the whole process. On the return journey, then, at the individual level, we have the cosmic process of manifestation, the manifestation of individual life waves, or they're called anus, uh, individual Transmigrating individual selves, the Anus. And the Anus are, are marked by the fact that they're, they're held in place in their individuality by what are called the Malas, these sheaths of limitation. The fundamental one is called the Anava Mala, which brings, it brings about the absence of fullness. So the, the feeling of the absence of fullness is there in the Anava Mala. Then you have uh, what's called the Maya Mala, which brings about the operation of differentiation and difference. And then the Karma Mala, which creates, it's it's not karma, it's karma with a long a, which means the agency, the sense of agency. So within ourselves, we have a place inside ourselves where we feel incomplete, inadequate, we're not whole. That it, it creates a problem. It creates a difficulty. It creates stress. It creates fear or anxiety. It creates also the absence of full knowledge. It also creates desire. Desire arises out of the apurnatwa, or the absence of fullness. In order to try to fill what is not full, there is the expression of the movement of desire. It's a question, does it actually fill it or not, is a separate question. So you have the anavamala, then you have the mayamala, which, which creates difference. And the focus or the emphasis of the anu is on difference. Consciousness is predominantly focused on difference in a certain kind of way, loses track or sight of the underlying or subjacent unity and the, the thread of, of non-duality is lost. And then it creates also the sensation of arrogating to ourselves our sense of agency, I'm doing this, the the, the karma mala, it says, you know, inside ourselves, I'm doing this, whereas really what's doing it is this freestanding, freely operating, totally free energy of the shakti, but we superimpose on the movements of the shakti that sensation, I'm the one who's performing these actions, and that creates then the anu, the transmigrating self in that way. Then the entire journey and, and Abhinavagupta, you know, as a great Shaiva theologian and, and master, he gets asked basically, and, you know, he asks the questions himself and then he answers his own questions. Basically, it's, why does this all happen? See? People say, well, w- wasn't everything perfect the way it was? Why do we have to go into this big mess of <clears throat> all of this that arises? It says, it is out of the freedom, the swatantriya of that. If reality were only Constrained to be absolute, there is a subtle bond of limitation imposed on that absolute reality. Therefore, if that reality is ultimate freedom, it must have as its intrinsic nature the capacity to express itself also in the the, the rising up of separateness, of difference, of change, of transformation, of specificity, um, and and the structures of individuality that arise there. Otherwise, we could we could indict freedom and say, look freedom has been limited. Therefore, it cannot be said to be totally free. So it is out of the freedom of the absolute that bondage and limitation arise. It's it's an incredibly beautiful teaching. It's not out of some mistake. It's not some error. It's not some fundamental uh, uh, sort of problematic or curse or anything like that. It is simply the expression of the freedom that it wants to express itself and, and indeed... Encapsulate Shiva, Shiva Shakti, we say, encapsulates himself herself within all of these transmigrating beings in that way. However, once that's happened, then those beings in the forgetfulness, this is the in the Nataraja Murtis, you have he dances on this little uh figure of the Apasmara, the 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 dwarf of forgetfulness he's called the Apasmara. Um and so in that forgetfulness we've forgotten we've forgotten all of this you see so the question then is how how does all of this arise once again that's that's the whole teaching of of upaya of of different levels of initiation um, etc and so on and I think that um there's a tremendous amount i'm trying to Talk about a lot of different things at once. Uh, Let me just
0: throw in a couple things here. Um, I I just reminded of that thing in the Gita, I think, where Krishna says, taking recourse to myself or curving back on myself, I create again and again. Again and and again. And and it's this, this thing about kind of the self-interacting dynamics of consciousness that creates this sort of threefold structure within the oneness. And uh, what are you doing there? (laughs) Irene's making gestures at me. (laughs) And, uh, you know, results in the whole diversification and emergence of creation. And it's funny, it's interesting also to note in physics they have this thing called... What is it called? A spontaneous sequential symmetry breaking or something mm. like that where, mm. where the sort of unified exactly. levels of, of creation, uh, become more and more diversified through a breaking of symmetries. Yes. And, yes. and eventually it b- becomes material creation. Um, I want to well you may want to comment on all that but do you or shall I ask the
1: next question oh go ahead go ahead okay
0: so what I just want to say was so based upon everything you just described in terms of the whole range of creation from gross to subtle and transcendent to transcendent and you referred to us as multi-dimensional beings Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, would you say that a, a good definition of an enlightened person might be someone who has fully realized their multidimensionality in the sense that their awareness is not restricted to some limited range but is open to the full range of their of reality from gross to subtle to transcendent and is fully capable of functioning on any or all of those levels either simultaneously or selectively according to the need of the circumstance
1: yeah that's beautiful i like that very much i mean i think that as you know, there there are stages to all of this also. Right. So the in terms of saying, well, how do we attain, how do we master, how do we establish more fully evolved states of consciousness? In the in the Shaiva text, then they talk about the Turiya state, a fourth state of consciousness, which is also talked about in the Vedantic sects, etc. and so on, Turiyatita, beyond the fourth state of consciousness. Then they want to talk about what's called the Atma Vyapti. And the Atma Vyapti really corresponds to what, uh, one interpretation possibly of what Kaivalya is, is, uh, Kaivalya is taught in the dualistic texts of classical yoga and, and classical Sankhya, which is a state in which the, in, in the yoga, classical yoga vocabulary, the Purusha has risen from being experienced as somehow lost in the Prakritic Body, mind, structure to its own separateness, and there is this. It is still a dualistic state, but is the rising of the Atman or the Self or the Pudisha value so that it has fully risen? As you know, however, then the the the, the process that doesn't end the process. That's really kind of a halfway stage, and the the the, the Shiva tradition then speaks about what's called the Divya Chakshus, the the evolution of. The perception of the celestial or the divine within external perception. And then finally, what's called the Shiva Vyapti, the perception of everything in terms of the absolute consciousness itself, in which the perception of an object is not lost, but yet there's the perception of it in terms of these, these. So it's, it's a very, very beautiful model that is found in, in a number of these texts of these stages in the growth of consciousness and for the Shaiva tradition, really, that it is only when the Shiva Vyapti state is reached that one could say the full unfolding of all of that. Now, it's, you know, referring back to what you said before, none of these are closed ended. In other words, that Abhinavagupta himself in one of his other texts, this very beautiful text called the Paratrinshika Vivarana, which is an exquisite commentary on, on Matrika Shakti, on this whole notion of mantra and so on. And he says, he says, thus far and so much have I seen. Greater beings who will come after will see more and further than I have. However, on the basis of my own awakening, and he uses the term Shaktipata, the the initiatory descent of the great potency of consciousness, I have seen this much and I have taught this much, etc. It's an extraordinarily sort of humble statement and also a statement that, that... is reverential in awe in terms in the face of that ultimacy of reality. It's not a closed ended sort of thing. Sometimes when you have these staged models and people say, "Well, that's a closed ended thing," it's not closed ended. It's just that it's just that at a certain moment, then it's so far beyond the capacity of an ordinary mind to understand that it really becomes almost pointless to even try to uh, to narrate a, a more fine tuned stages within that. And I think that you know the study of great beings and masters and so on. It's often you mentioned it before, and I, I agree that it, it's often the case that a master will say, well, this was when I achieved full enlightenment. Then if one studies the life of that individual, one sees that they kept on growing, they kept on modifying their teachings, they kept on evolving further and more expansive and also more subtle expressions and articulations of the whole matter. And that then also the, the, the reported other things transpiring within the field of their awareness that, that do not correspond to a notion of kind of a static end station in which then everything comes to an end in that way. But
0: Yeah. Um, and you just actually mentioned an important example of that. I want to make sure people caught that. Um, and You referred to self-realization, but that doesn't necessarily imply... Appreciating the full value of the object yeah, of experience. Exactly. And there's a sort of a unified quality to that self-realization that one might think this is it, this is non-duality. Right. And right. yet the whole relative creation is seen as as separate from that, and is not it's still stula. Yeah, yeah. And it's not seen yeah. in its ultimate right. value as being the very same stuff essentially as the exactly. self which has been realized. That's and, right. And so the, it's more of a duality than we had to begin with, <laughs>
1: in a sense. Yes. Uh, yeah. It is. Yeah. It's a full a real duality, and that's exactly right. And the thing is, you see. Now, coming back to Tantra and people saying, well, what's the definition of Tantra? One of the ways to understand the evolution in the historical sense of you have the sort of classical yoga as one of the six Darshana, Shad Darshana systems, and then you have almost parallel, but moving on centuries afterwards, the evolution of the Shaiva Tantra is the difference between forms of practice that are primarily introversive and going inside versus forms of practice that were primarily extroversive. The whole basis of the tantric curriculum of of initiatory and esoteric practice was based on the notion that all of the prior stuff, it's kind of like a person in order to learn calculus, they need to know some basic mathematics, they need to know some algebra, they need to know some trigonometry, and so on. And only then can you begin to understand calculus, the higher calculus, or whatever higher forms of mathematics even uh, exist than all of that. You have to have that foundation so that the dualistic rising to the Atma-Vyapti, which could be, I know there are people who want to depict Kaivali in different ways, you know, I bow to them, but but I'm just saying, it seems like a sort of a prima facie, a reading of Kaivali, is this state of the separateness mm-hmm. of the Purusha from all the prakritic structures of the individual body-mind, that then that forms a a platform and foundation in which now (laughs) practice that's going to happen is going to be extroversive. In other words, that there's going to be a movement from the purusha into the prakritic, which is not really kosher within the, that's not really permitted within the classical yoga system. The movement of consciousness that begins to breach the separation of those two, and that that extroversive movement is really the heart of the higher forms of practice in the Tantric tradition. One of the, I'm, I'm sorry, you have a question. Yeah, I want to make sure this. people
0: understand what you mean by extroversive by movement. And yeah. Kaivalya means alone, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. So if, if you're kind of alone in the self, and yet there's this right. whole relative creation that you haven't um, engulfed within that right. wholeness of the right. self, then you're not alone. There's there's, exactly. so, there's somebody else breathing down your neck. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> the whole universe, right. and so this extroversive, if that's the word you used, um, immersion, or yeah. is that the way you said it? Yeah, it would seem to me to be a bleeding of the, um, the the oneness of the self. Into the, um, into the diversity of creation. And it's not like exactly. it's, it's emanating out from us into it. It's that we're kind of realizing more and more and more subtly and deeply that the creation in its essence is the very same that we are, thing that we are in our essence. And so right. when that's fully realized, then there's only one totality. And, exactly. no, and you know, all diversity is subsumed within that.
1: Right. Beautiful. Exactly. And that's what you see in terms of, I mean, there, there are beautiful ways that this gets taught and expressed in the Shaiva tradition. One is in terms of these different terms for the goddess force of consciousness. And so they say, look, the operation, of the goddess force of consciousness can be narrated in terms of four forms of the goddess. The first of these is called Vama. Vama means that from the depths of the transcendent, there is this outward explosion of relative reality, of individuals, of difference, of change, et cetera, and so on. And that it's a current that is continuously emanating from the heart of ultimacy that is emanating out and asserting very powerfully the the facing of consciousness or individual awareness out toward the objective universe. And that therefore, I mean, this is one of the problems in practice, because if your awareness is being swept in kind of this tidal wave of the Vama, extroversive, outwardly looking movement of awareness, how do you move against that vama current in order to go inside? This is one of the problems of meditative practice. Now the tantric tradition says, look, just just as reality outwardly expands, so too does it flow back toward the center. You have this sankocha vikasa, the expansion and contraction of the heart of reality. So they say there is a parallel current and she is called Jyeshta. Jieshta means senior or prior. The movement of the Jyeshta current moves from the stula or surface level of reality back toward the heart of consciousness and into the transcendent. And the idea is that if you can locate that current, it's like placing a little canoe in a river, it will flow effortlessly on that current back into the absolute. So it's not a question of fighting. You know, sometimes I use these silly analogies and talking about this, you know, the Vama current, it's kind of like trying to go up the down escalator. You have a down escalator that's moving everything out. You're trying to go against the flow of that, and it becomes a notion of a battle, a war. It becomes effortful. It becomes difficult. Actually, it becomes impossible. It's not possible to counteract the impulse of the Vama current. She is so strong that in that field of reality, she will always flow everything out, from the absolute down into the specificities of the relative. So the question in practice then is how do you locate the inception point of the jeshta current that will move from stula the surface into the subtle into the subtlest and into the transcendent and where do, how do you find that that current it's the it's the secret esoteric current And and so on, and that's that's at the very center of of initiatory practice in a certain sense, the gesture current. Now, that doesn't end there, however, because the tradition says then, as you cultivate the movement of awareness on this extroversive Vama current and this introversive gesture current that rises in and more and more subtle and takes us eventually, takes our attention to merge into its source in the absoluteness, there is a third current called the Rowdri current. The Raudri current is a higher-level extroversive current that flows down from the Absolute, transforming and transmuting all of the tattva structures that it encounters in this way. And that this the Raudri current is really, in a certain sense, the heart of the whole Tantric enterprise of transmutation and divinization. As practice begins to activate this higher flow of the Raudri current, a a flow of non-dual embracing absoluteness is somehow paradoxically flowing into you to encounter your buddhi, your pre-egoic awareness, your ahankara, your individual identity assemblage point, your manas, your operating mind, your buddhindriyas, your sense capacities, your karmendriyas, and then eventually the tanmatras and mahabhutas are all being bathed in the extroversive flow of transformational consciousness, and that this is one of the meanings of of the Kundalini Shakti. In other words, that the Kundalini Shakti is understood here as this transmutational, spontaneous force that is flowing out and down. It's one of the reasons also people say this term Shaktipata. Why is it descending? Because it is, it is descending from the absolute to embrace and enclose and hold our individuality. But in that sense, transmuting its functionality, radically transmuting its functionality. As before we were talking about householder practice, we we're saying this is the essence of, of 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 the third form of we have the Srishti form of householder practice, which is radical creativity, the stiti form of householder practice, which is radical. Stewardship and protection, as it were, the protection of everything in life. We have to protect things and maintain them in a certain way. And then radical transformation. And that this rowdery current then is what is at play, particularly starting at the level of this attainment of the, of the apti. And it begins to bathe individual, the individual structure in the, in such a force of transformative potency of consciousness, that it is radically transmuting the functionality of the mind, of the ego, and of the senses from contraction, limitation, narrowness, and, and overshadowing of ignorance, and so on, to being vessels for luminosity, vessels for extraordinary capacity, vessels for highest of uh, uh, possibilities, vessels for extraordinary natural virtues, vessels for inspiration and insight and wisdom, vessels for every possible form of outward expression, and that this rowd current then, in a certain sense, is, is at the very core of, of the higher stages of what the Shaiva Tantra path envisions with regard to this this whole process. Within that, then, we begin to see the objects— at, in a higher meaningful glow and a higher level of their of their profundity, of their sacredness. life begins to reveal to us that what appear to be ordinary sort of sort of just ordinary objects of a crude sort are not that at all that they, they, they it's stripping away. The, the superficiality of things, beginning to see the value, the deeper value, the deepest values. And within that, we begin to catch glimpses of what could be called, in, in the tradition says, the divya chakras or the divine eye, or using this word, as Maharshi used it, the celestial, the celestial value, or the highest value within the relative structure of reality of everything. We begin to see everything in the glow of this exquisiteness of such an extraordinary sort. And this is part and parcel of the tantric teachings when they talk about the rasa, the rasa or the flavor, the nectar of everything. And tantricas as rasikas, people who taste the, both the celestial and also eventually the non-dual within every experience of life altogether. And so, I mean, it's, it's just, it's their exquisite teachings within that. Yeah. It is, it is, yeah. Beautiful. Uh, there's much more, yeah.
0: I, I, I got goosebumps a couple of times while you were saying all that. I hope people really tuned into what you're saying because it, it's, it's extremely important and, and amazing. And here's a little sentence from one of your books which kind of recapitulates and encapsulates what you just said, or part of what you just said. Through the systematic practice of meditation, the mind gains the spontaneous ability of great habitual easefulness in the movement from the gross to the subtle to the extremely subtle. Right, right. And um, I know you're, no, you're familiar with the notion of natural tendency of the mind to seek a field of greater yes. happiness and these subtler yes. realms being intrinsically more gratifying or charming yes. or, or fulfilling. Yes. So the type of meditation you teach, does it take advantage of that tendency? And, 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 yeah. and that's why it's effortless?
1: Yes. So I talk about it in terms of three different values. I, I, I talk about the spuṭa value, which is the, the luminous, the, the pulsating incandescence of the light of consciousness. The light always expands. It always moves toward more and more. Light is not static. It's not something that doesn't. So consciousness, as, as the Mahaprakasha, as the great light, then is shaping itself as our individual awareness. But the inherent, what in Sanskrit is called the Swabhavata. what is the inherent nature of the mind? This is the question that the the, Sha- the Shaiva Tantric tradition uh, asks. It says that the, what is the swabhava? It says just like the swabhava of fire is heat, just like the swabhava of the flower is its perfume, so too the swabhava of the mind is that it is expansive in its character. Vikasa. It is always moving towards something more, or it wants to move towards something more. And the question then is. What is the directionality for that movement toward expansion going to take? And, and is it going to, is it going to move on the vomit current out toward more and more acquisition, more and more possessions, more and more external experiences of a sensory sort at the surface of life? And, or is it also going to move in terms of this expansiveness of the interior states where we, we begin to understand? Uh, Use the word "charm." It's a very beautiful word. The, the tantric tradition says just the the intensity or pulsation of the Shakti is, increases as you approach that absoluteness. It's like the, the the sun in the sky emanates heat. As you get closer to the sun, it gets hotter. So as you get closer to the self, the intensity of the Ananda or bliss value of the absolute increases. And as our mind registers that, the mind spontaneously wants to get absorbed within that. So the swabhava of the mind in this tradition is this 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 spurata value that says it's expansive in its character. We could say it goes toward more and more because of because of these explanations, the tradition says. And as a result of that, eventually we experience, I mentioned before, Hridaya Vishranti. We 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 learn how to repose or rest in the heart here, heart, not meaning the physical heart chakra, but really in the absoluteness itself. Now, within that also, then, uh, I mean, so it's, it's a long, there's lots to talk about here, but there's two other values. Um, the, the, the soma. Oh, and the spandana value. The soma value is really the value, the inherent nature of the body. What is the nature of the body? It is the, the livingness, the vibrancy or throb, what's called in in the tantric text, the shoba, kshoba, the throb of life within the body is such that it is always moving to try to replicate and maintain the highest degree of wholeness that is possible to be maintained within a living structure. It may not be absolute wholeness, but it's what is the highest degree of relative wholeness that is possible to be maintained within the physical body? And that's the Swabhava of the living body. It has that swabhava because of the presence of consciousness. Once consciousness departs, we know that wholeness is not maintained, and the body will then go back to its constituent five elements, etc., and so on, it, at the time of death and the decomposition of the body. So it is the it is the presence of consciousness and of this, what we could call the soma value of wholeness, that is constantly operating. How do we increase... The field of functionality of that sum of value within the physical body. See, that's, that's part of the question of practice because as that value increases, it goes to work doing all of those things automatically and spontaneously that it needs to do uh, within the body. And that therefore it's one of the, one of the really beautiful insights of the tantric Shaivite tradition is they distinguish between what they call natural and spontaneous practice versus artificial and synthetic practices. They're both categories of practice. They're not being, they're not, but, but they're saying that the higher, it's in Sanskrit, it's called akritrema. What are those practices that harness the natural, the natural inherent nature of the body and the mind, such that then they, they function not on the basis of individual genius or skill or predilection or taste or whatever, but they function by harnessing that natural, the inherent nature of what is there, the swabhavata of, of the mind, which is its, its spurata value, the, this incandescent pulsation, the swabhavata of the body, which is the soma value. And it is that increased range of operation of the soma value, which then goes to work basically doing, you were talking before about the releasing of everything that's been accumulated inside, etc. And so on. It's an extraordinary understanding of the of the autonomous, spontaneous nature of this natural intelligence of the body, given a wider range of operation, doing automatically what is necessary to transform and transmute, rather than having us have to. You know, people sometimes talk about I, I need to clear my chakras and this and the other. Also, it's like no, that should happen automatically. It should happen as part of the natural sort of housekeeping. Yeah, the third I mean, It's value, like saying I yeah. need to
0: digest my sandwich. Yeah, exactly try doing Beautiful. that intentionally you know exactly. i need to right. i need to get some blood Perfect. down to my toe
1: <laughs> exactly that's that's exactly it or you have a scar you have a cut what is it that heals it you see it's it's there's a natural intelligence that's operative within there just give it a wider range this, this uh, called the soma value so anyway there's there's lots more to talk about that but it's it's, yeah.
0: uh, it's great stuff um i want to a couple well i want to accomplish a couple things in the remainder of our time together um one is um, a more thorough discussion of what then you're actually... Well, you've given us a good explanation just now, I think, of the mechanics yeah. of your med- yeah. the meditation you teach. Yeah. In, in terms of its basic principles, maybe people would like to hear something even more specific. I mean, do you teach mantras or what do you do? Yes. If, if you would like to say a bit more like... And since I've just asked this question now, let me go ahead on that if you'd like. And what more can you tell people about the nature of the practice... Um, the routine of it, how much do you do it, uh, how often, how long, and even if you'd like to say, uh, what's involved in learning? What does it cost? How long does it take to learn?
1: Right. Yeah, um, sure, of course. Um, I started um, teaching this practice uh, 10 years ago, and um, basically now I've grown to uh, um, have trained people who are teachers of this practice. So they're now um, teachers in a lot of different locations. Uh, we have 33 teachers now. Uh, and we're hoping to have more teachers. So my focus has moved somewhat from teaching the practice itself to teaching teachers of the practice over the last of the last five years, uh, it's been a very, very beautiful uh, investment in in very wonderful individuals who've come forward uh, to teach it. Yes, mantra is at the very center of it, but it is it, it is an understanding of mantra that's quite nourished and sophisticated in terms of what the tantric tradition wants to say. Mantra is not a mantra is not fully contained in its constituent phonemes or what are called varnas in sanskrit the the phonemes are like the outer covering of the mantra the the tantric tradition speaks about what's called the mantra vidya the potency of the mantra the potency of the mantra is fundamentally awakened consciousness and the and the issue then has to do with how how does a mantra contain this awakened consciousness such that the, the the mantra is alive in a certain way and that the mantra is that mechanism or tool, the vibratory key that meshes with the overarching I, I call it the baseline, vibration of the body-mind. It's like we're all vibrating beings. We have multiple interacting and intersecting levels of vibration, but there's a baseline vibration of our whole individuality, and then there's a single vibratory key that unlocks access to the jeshta current. Fundamentally, So it's what is that vibration, which when it is simply pulsated in the awareness very easily without effort, begins to open our individual attention to this current that will move in the interiorizing direction and, and take us inside automatically in that way. That's the, that's the, the, the fundamental structure. It's learned uh, in a two-day process, basically, uh, over the course of two days. Um, somewhere in the range that, uh, from 400 to about 600 dollars to take that course. There's a 18 m- a month process of support and study, so it's not just the the weekend or the two days of study. We have a whole system set up for supporting people in their first stages, and for me, it's it's just very crucial to offer people support in the daily practice of meditation. It starts with about. 15 or 20 minutes can move up to 45 uh, minutes as people advance uh, more and more. Um, But supporting people to the point where they become autonomous or self-sufficient in their practice. And that involves both a kind of a deepening of the practice, but it also involves a refining of understanding. As we were speaking before, what is it that's actually happening? How do I understand what's taking place uh, within me as a result of my meditation? How do I how, how do I value what's important and not value what's not important in what's transpiring uh, within my awareness in that way? And so. That's what that's basically, you know, I I was a full professor at the University of Rochester and in uh basically starting in around 2005 I started to feel like the walls were closing in on me. I wonderful colleagues, wonderful university, I had thousands of wonderful students there and yet there was something that was really really calling me to come back to meditation um and to really begin to offer a practice of meditation from the context of the Shaiva householder tradition in this way, using this vocabulary uh, of the tradition. Um, okay. So, uh, obviously, there's much more to say. Oh, yeah, about I was that, just but, thinking but that. Yes, I was thinking, yeah, well, we yeah. could go on this topic for an hour. Um, exactly. But I just want to
0: say I've been meditating in probably a similar way for o- yes. almost 50 years myself. And Yes and i've never missed one actually in 50 years yeah, you know at least beautiful. at least twice a day for at least an hour yeah. basically and that's not because i have some kind of superhuman self discipline or <laughs> in fact when i first started a lot of my friends just said oh yeah right now he's on his latest kick and we'll see what he's doing in a week but it was right? so Profound and so effective, exactly. and just exactly. so transformational right. from exactly. day one, and continue to exactly. be year after year. That I've, you know, it's never been a, a matter of discipline or struggle or effort or anything to, to yes, stick that's with. That's right.
1: It's beautiful. Yeah. It's absolutely beautiful. Exactly. That's exactly it. And that's what, you know, wanting to offer people. In different modalities, there's just, there's different branches, there are different schools, etc. and so on. But that understanding of the akritrema, of the natural spontaneous practice that functions not on the basis of our skill or talent or belief or predisposition, but is really an opening to an existing current of consciousness that we can we can begin to travel in, and that will will embrace us, and that and that takes us in, and that and that is really delightful and sumptuous in in its inner experience, extraordinarily fulfilling and nourishing, and also extraordinarily refining to everything that we experience after and during our daily life. Yeah. In, as a result of our practice, it's it's really beautiful. It, yeah.
0: Exactly. I mean, it, it it's such a sweet and fulfilling experience and like you said that whole thing you said about st- the word started with an R stream
1: Rowdry. yeah the, the about Christ. that yeah. sort
0: of infusing yeah. itself into all exactly. the fi- that was so beautiful and so so car- so true of my experience that, that it's like well I mean just a simple example is you, you kind of you take you know a bucket of water and then you throw it on the plants the plants flourish or you, right. you you know you take a cloth and dip it in the dye it comes out and right. it's colored right. whatever but there, there's like this soaking up of this right. inner um, beauty and then it just uh, as when you come out in activity and engage in activity for a number of hours it just begins to permeate and transform every
1: and phase of your exactly. activity
0: it's like fuel you beautiful. know that that kind yes. of or like like sap in a tree that nourishes every yes. aspect of the tree
1: it's beautiful yeah. yes that's exactly right beautiful yeah beautiful. another
0: thing i want to get into with you we'll go a little long because uh, this is so interesting and this might seem a little academic, but I think it would actually, it will actually have practical implications for people in terms of the understanding of it. You say that Abhinavagupta, if I'm pronouncing his name right, sort of took issue with the Yoga Sutras and, and the way that was traditionally yes. understood. Right, right. And um, he rejected the sort of notion, as I understood what you were saying, that the um, limbs of yoga, as Patanjali outlined them, grow sequentially and I got the sense that you were saying that he said that they actually grow simultaneously, as do the limbs in a body, as when, a, exactly. when an embryo turns into a you know, fetus into a human being, right. Right. and so that would imply that uh, it's not like you go through all these different steps and eventually get to right. samadhi but that you right, begin right. with samadhi on day 1 to a certain degree exactly. of clarity yes, uh, yeah exactly. and that uh, over time all the limbs of yoga if we want to take that model of yeah. Yeah, they, they all refine and grow simultaneously right
1: yes absolutely and that's well said and i mean it's it, he has a complex he has an agenda in mind with regard to wanting to present a non-dual tradition that is yet based on a prior dualistic tradition, which is classical yoga and classical sankhya. And so he has to kind of, what he's really doing in a certain sense is it's like remodeling and expanding a house. You have the house, and then you want to build higher stories on the whole thing and add to it. You have to kind of you have to have a, a certain amount of, of remodeling that's going to happen. It's qu- it's a, it's kind of nuanced and complex, but he does that um, in his Tantra in in great detail. And he takes he takes the perspective also that what is central, and this is a whole huge chapter of his tantraloka, this massive kind of encyclopedia called The Light on the Tantras, the thirteenth daily lesson, or anika, is devoted to the concept of Shaktipata, which is an extraordinarily mysterious concept, but it has to do with the the movement of freedom within the structures of bondage. How is it that freedom moves within the structures of bondage and limitation? And that the, the nature of reality is such that no matter what structure of bondage or limitation, smallness, contraction, ignorance, or loss is there, There's going to be some movement of freedom that's going to come and open that up, and that we experience that as human beings in in the sense of a kind of uh, trajectory of life that at a certain moment, something begins to happen inside us that is radically impelling us from deepest levels inside us to a transformed outlook on life, to a transformed perspective on what we want to do with our life, and to open us. And make us even interested in dimensions of life and dimensions of existence that prior to that may have been absolutely disinteresting to us. And so, and, and this he calls Shaktipata. And there's a whole, um, investigation. What causes Shaktipata? How does it move? What are the different stages of Shaktipata? What are the different levels of intensity of Shaktipata, et cetera, and so on? But the, but the bottom line is he says that basically it is that if we want to use the term awakening, but it's this burgeoning and and opening and blossoming from inside of this increased vibrancy, luminosity, and potency of consciousness that is going to begin to move the individual from deep inside into a, a trajectory of seeking out a path a sequence of teachings, a sequence of teachers, et cetera, and so on, and will in fact be the basis and foundation for that individual then investing themselves in their life on the ba- in, into practice, and that it's not it's not is sometimes understood as a kind of initiation that a teacher gives, et cetera. That's also an understanding that a benavukupta gives, but he's talking about kind of the radical or root awakening that happens in the trajectory of sequences of life the individual that has been in encased and and limited and even imprisoned within this anu uh, this limited transmigrating individual manifesting ignorance limitation the absence of knowledge etc and so on suddenly something from within the core of that individual begins to begins to burgeon and begins to move and begins to transform and change and you know i talk about it sometimes as when you know there's a, there's a kind of a an earthquake that happens at the bottom of the ocean the tsunami wave that will happen at the surface takes some time to happen the tsunami wave of transformation and force at the level of the surface of the ocean is an expression of an extraordinary hidden event that even possibly doesn't even exist or take place within the level of the relative individuality. It's on the borderline of the individuality and the absoluteness of the individual. Some fundamental radical transmutation of that relationship that begins to release the constricting power of the malas, of these constricting rings of limitation. And on that basis, and on that basis alone, he argues then, the individual will Engage in transformative, radically transformative spiritual practice to one degree or another. So he wants to talk about mild, medium, and intense levels of Shaktipattha. It's very, very fascinating. Um, kind of uh, discourse about that. But that's the basis of it. It's on that basis, he says, that an individual then seeks out a teacher, receives initiation, receives teaching, learns ritual practices, learns about different texts and traditions, et cetera, and so on. It's all on the basis of this surging impulse of the movement of freedom uh, from inside, uh, that, that is priorly taken place and is even beyond the capacity of the individual to inspect. In other words, it's not a phenomenon that we can become aware of. It's something that's actually radically, it's the beginnings of the movement of that Rodri current that we talked about before. It's downstreaming into the individual to, to impel that individual toward transformation and then, you have the the destiny of that individual, the karma of that individual, the past connections of that individual that lead that individual out into relationships with teachers, with traditions, with different lineage streams, with different sorts of expressions of, of that might be there. It's a whole. This is the you know the, the complex you know indescribable play of karma that that comes in at that point in, of destiny of the individual led in, in a variety of different traditions, but. It's a very, very important concept of Shaktipata that is at the center of the whole thing. And there also, you see the Patanjali in his Yoga Sutra, um, sutras and also in the, in the, um, the, the various commentaries, the Vyasa Bhasha and so on of the Yoga Sutra. There is no explicit concept of grace in this text. Later commentators have wanted to read it back in. Mainly because then the evolution of the, of the Shaiva tradition that popularizes this notion of grace. But there is no notion of grace. It's basically, it's basically the notion that says, well, just, you know, the individual begins to practice through assiduous and prolonged effort, as the Yoga Sutra says, there is a speed of attainment, et cetera, and so on and all of that. That's also one of the radical on, uh, remodelings, in a certain sense, he has to make a place for this this concept of Shaktipata that is there.
0: Yeah, well, God helps those who help themselves, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> he helps us to help ourselves. Yeah. yes. she she helps us. You know, yeah. one
0: thing I was wondering about the whole yoga thing, though, Patanjali is that um, you know the whole idea of the the co- correlation between all the different values of life, such as ethical behavior and and the growth growth of samadhi. And, you know, some teachers have said that, well, they're all going to grow apace and not be out of sync with one another. But then there are people like Ken Wilber that talk about lines of development and how one one line can get really out of whack with other lines. And there seems to be many examples of this happening. Uh, So I find that interesting. Um, I don't know what Kashmir Shaivism has to say about it.
1: Well, I mean, it, it, that comes back to this whole notion of vikalpa samskara, where there's a disjunction um, and, and a out-of-syncness with regard to some rising degree of interior experience, and yet it hasn't fully established itself at the level of action, at the level of speech, at the level of, of discernment, um, and so on. Of the individual and also at the level of knowledge, and so that that's part of you know the the catching up of these various dimensions, yeah of, that, that has like happened. is it a tight
0: yeah. um, rope tying these things together or a big stretchy rubber band and they, you
1: know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just different aspects that you know eventually, yes, you have when the movement of that potency of consciousness is sufficiently potent and powerful and surges through the individual, there will be radical rearrangements and and surfacing of the different virtues, in a certain sense, the kind of the saintly virtues, the capacity for love, the capacity for patience, for compassion, for forgiveness, for for, uh, extraordinary selflessness, et cetera, and so on. These are also expressions of the the, the higher... manifestations of the expression of life at that level but it may be some time before before that happens i mean it's, it's a it, these as you know these are multi-lifetime sorts of perspectives not just in a single lifetime
0: yeah i'm glad you mentioned that um, yeah of course some people don't even believe in lifetimes because they say that there yeah. is no self ultimately so how could anybody reincarnate because there's nobody reincarnate but i don't even want to get into that that's whole right. argument that's <laughs> <laughs> uh, like a great one yeah, yeah. i'd like to get uh, i've locked horns with people on that one before yeah. but um Two two sutras from the, from the Shiva sutras I'd like to conclude with and have you just comment briefly on each one sure. because I thought they were fascinating. Um, one is that, uh, maybe we'll take the second one first, that the knowledge of the self constitutes a natural, spontaneous, non-conceptual and immediate state of certainty. And the mm-hmm. word certainty kind of jumps out at yeah. me because a lot of people yeah. talk about, you know, being so open-minded as to not be kind of plagued by doubts, but not be trying to be, um, like Nisargadatta said something along the lines of that the the ability to appreciate paradox and ambiguity are signs yes, of spiritual right. maturity. So yes, that seems to right. kind of contradict a little yeah. bit the word certainty.
1: Well, I think we have to interpret that on various levels. In other words, that if we take the opposite, one of the synonyms for the mala in the Kashmir Shaiva teachings is shanka, And Shankha is most commonly translated as doubt, or hesitation, anxiety, or fear, or uncertainty. And so it's not just certainty of knowledge, it's a state of doubting yourself fundamentally, of doubting everything about life, of doubting the universe, of doubting God, uh, and so on. And the notion of certainty in that beautiful sutra that you just quoted from the Shiva Sutras, is not about, it's not necessarily just about an intellectual certainty that chooses one thing over another. It's about a certain kind of knowledge that is so immovable and steady that, yes, it can encompass within its breadth and steadiness the apparent paradoxes. I mean, that you know, when you're dealing with, when you're dealing with ultimacy, you're dealing with inherent contradictions. The absolute is that about which contradictory things can be correctly asserted. You can say it's empty, and you can say it's full, and they're both true, you see? And so the question is, you know, it's not about saying, well, you have to choose one of those alternatives. It's about saying, what is that state or level of consciousness that is so steady? The the, the Sanskrit word is dardhya. It's the, it's immovable it's absolutely rock steady and within that then different kinds of thought streams will be shaped in the awareness of such an individual that are applicable or or sort of appropriate for different circumstances of life it isn't about a sort of doctrinal certainty that says this is what's right and this is what's wrong it's more about saying this is reality and this is how reality appears and shows itself up in and 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 in my life there is the capacity to encompass that 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 huge diversity because we know that that diversity is also taking place on the underlying invisible fabric or thread of the of the non-difference of the non-duality that is where consciousness is stabilized so so yeah okay you could
0: almost perhaps substitute the word confidence for certainty Uh, yeah 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 okay so the final one this would be a nice one to end on it's really sweet the stations and stages of yoga are marked by the experience yeah. of surprise, wonder, right. and blissful astonishment.
1: I love it. I Isn't know. that awesome? Vismayo. It's beautiful. Yeah. Vismayo, Yoga Bhumika. It's one of my absolute favorites, top favorites you picked, so thank you for mm-hmm. that. It's yes, first of all, yoga here doesn't mean asana practice right. or I mean, just the practice it's of the Ashtanga. Whatever. Yoga, it's really the yoga whole, whatever. Exactly, yeah. the whole path. The whole path. Yeah. And the notion of boomies or stages here is what we've been talking about with regard to the stages in the evolutionary growth of consciousness and the solidification of higher and higher, more evolved and more refined states of the whole thing. And that within that, then it's, it's also we were alluding to this from a lower level, it is impossible for us to fully comprehend, envision, understand, or imagine what is going to transpire and reveal itself as consciousness grows from that lower level to a higher level of consciousness. Therefore, what happens is that in the encounter with that transformational process, as higher states of consciousness are revealing themselves, there will be this delightful experience of surprise of wonder of astonishment of of exclamation of joy of a certain kind of blissfulness and and also just a, it's a revelatory quality of seeing something that you've never seen before understanding something that you've never understood before and experiencing something that is beyond the sort of the range of of ordinary experience up until then so vismayo it's a, it's a beautiful word and smaya in sanskrit also means smile it brings a smile to the face it's a smile of delight of of joy of of Ananda, of happiness. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, one of the reasons I like that verse, and one of the reasons I like this whole conversation we've been having, and, and everything you that you work on, is that I feel that a lot of times enlightenment is kind of dumbed down. I mean, you hear people mm-hmm. saying things like, oh yeah, enlightened people can be depressed, they can be prone to anger, they can you know, be into drinking, or, you know, whatever. Somebody I interviewed a couple of years ago recently committed suicide, mm. because he was suffering some rather severe pain, but mm. it's something that Perhaps could have been um, solved, but it, you know mm-hmm. his feeling was, "eh, I'm going to get new body. and um, This one's not working mm-hmm. working out so well." No. And, and it really confused a lot of people. You know, yeah. they think, "How could he do this? How could a p- person who's supposedly awake awake do this?" So I really like that I like you were talking earlier about maps. I really like things which help to give people a clear conception of what the mm-hmm. possibilities are, of what enlightenment might actually be, so mm-hmm. it doesn't get shortchanged, you know, and right. so, so mm. we don't think of it as something that's hardly an improvement on what many of us are already experiencing, you know, but something that really would perhaps res, you know, make life infinitely more fulfilling than it ordinarily is, and, and, and full of surprise, wonder, and, and blissful yeah. astonishment.
1: Well said, beautiful. Mm. I love it. Exactly, I couldn't agree more. Exactly right. Great. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well,
0: I better wrap it up because you and I could go on all day. Um, <laughs> so, thank you so much, Paul. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Oh, thank you. As I knew, I'm I, so yeah, glad it was great. And uh, I think a lot of people will really enjoy it. And they can go to bluethroatyoga.com and uh, find out more about you. Get in touch. Figure out how to learn your meditation. Uh, I'll be linking to that, of course, thank from you. your page on that Gap and and um, you have quite a few books. It would take me a couple of minutes just to hold them all up here and read their titles, so I that's, won't do that, but okay. people can find their here, bibliography. And, uh, you know, they take some settled awareness to read some of them because there there's some really deep stuff being discussed, but um, you know, I found them fascinating and right up my alley in terms of the things that I like to understand better. And, and, uh, I'm glad. I think, I'm very glad. Know, many others, I think, will, too. So, that's and I guess for us wrapping
1: up. Thank yeah. You. Well it's it's beautiful work that you're doing Rick. It's really admirable and i really just admire what you've been doing and bringing out these conversations and it's a great opportunity to for people to hear so many different perspectives and points of view and to really consider for themselves. And for me it's always this notion that says each person really has to find that inside themselves. They have to decide for themselves. It's not about sort of, you know, what what any one teacher or text says. It's what ultimately resonates inside so having access to a great variety of points of view perspectives arguments understandings experiences of life and so on, it's very rich and enriching and so it's it's beautiful work that well, you're thanks. doing it's really congratulations on everything you're doing
0: hey, you were talking earlier about the sort of the hierarchical nature of the teacher-student relationship and maybe mm-hmm. we're at a time where we should be kind of more self-sufficient and and so on and i was i was just thinking about that and then you know that we should have it we should culture discrimination i mean we should hold yeah. teachers accountable we shouldn't we yeah. should have the maturity not to get suckered in by something that's going to waste our time right. and money or lead us astray and and so on and, and i think people are realizing that as the decades progress and everyone becomes right. more experienced sometimes through the school of hard knocks but <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> but maybe right. some of those hard knocks can be avoided as we evolve as a right. as a spiritual culture
1: it's beautiful yeah. well said
0: okay so um You've been listening to another interview on Buddha at the Gas Pump, um, number four hundred and seventeen or something, um, wow. and we'll keep cranking them out. It's not—you referred to it as work. It's not work. It's, <laughs> although delight. it's, it's A great it's delight. play. Uh, although there's some work behind the scenes (laughs) but um uh, so we appreciate your listening or watching Um, go to the website and see what's there you know you can sign up for the email notification when uh, you can sign up for the audio podcast there's a donate button which we rely upon people clicking from time to time and uh, many other things just explore the menus and stay tuned for more thanks paul
1: thank you so much thank you so much thank you so much you're welcome wonderful Wonderful to talk with you today.